How aggressive should a fantasy owner be if he already has a successful team? I'll ask Justin Mason, a fantasy baseball writer and broadcaster, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Hey, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 25th. It's my wife's birthday and show number 18 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Justin Mason. He owns the great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. He writes for Fangraphs and Rotographs, and he broadcasts on the Tout Wars Hour radio show on the Fantasy Sports Network. Justin and I will discuss being aggressive with an already successful team. We'll talk about fab and trade offers. We'll talk about players and rumors and his boons and banes. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at the Reds' bullpen with Razel Iglesias on the DL, the Diamondbacks' outfield with Steven Souza on the DL, and much more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson will be looking at injuries to D. Gordon, Chris Davis, and Jacob Faria. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon reports on San Diego top shortstop prospect Fernando Tatis. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Cincinnati second baseman Brandon Dixon. And in our pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at a marquee matchup with Lance McCullers of the Astros in Cleveland for a showdown with Carlos Carrasco and some other weekend matchups. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about using roster spots and rest-of-season projections. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the Rays' big experiment with Sergio Romo. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Josh Reddick is on the DL. Because of a spider bite? We gotta talk some baseball. I don't know if you saw this, but Houston outfielder Josh Reddick went on the DL on Wednesday with what the team called a leg infection. Reddick told a Houston radio station he's pretty sure the infection was caused by a spider bite. No word on whether the spider was radioactive. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. So if you see Josh Reddick flying around the buildings of Houston in a blue and red costume with a mask, yeah, don't be entirely surprised. In the first inning of this Friday News and Comment Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason, owner of the great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, a writer at Fangraphs and Rotographs, and a broadcaster on the Tout Wars Hour radio show on the Fantasy Sports Network. Justin Mason, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Well, thank you for having me. This is really exciting for me. Uh, let's start off by talking about your own fantasy play. How many teams are you running this season? If my count is correct, I believe I'm playing in 17 leagues this year. So it's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a busy season, for sure. How do you manage so many teams? Uh, I luckily have a a day job slash night job. I work midnight to 8 a.m. And it's uh, at a place that allows me to kind of do other things. And so 
I do a lot of my writing at night and a lot of my, my managing at night. But it's been difficult to keep up with because on top of that, I'm running 13 leagues for the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational this year. So it's been, uh, it's been quite a test. Justin, last week on the show, I talked with Dave Potts. I'm sure you're familiar with Dave, and he plays a lot of teams as well. And we got into a bit of a conversation about how do you manage your portfolio of teams when some of them are doing well and some of them are not doing well? Do you just kind of give up on the on the poor ones and do the bare minimum and focus on the good ones, or do you try to play them all tough? I try my best to play them all tough. Obviously, when you're playing in as many leagues as I do, that be- can become more difficult than others. Luckily, some of them are weekly lineup leagues and so, or NFBC leagues where uh, they're like draft and holds where I'm not having to make a lot of uh, moves throughout the week. But, you know, I, I, don't like give, I don't like signing up for something and then not giving full effort. And so I tend to try my best and the schedule I keep uh, being up at night and sleeping during the day allows me to, uh, to to stay on top of things maybe a little bit easier than a person with a nine to five job that can't do things at work like I can. So uh, I- I'm lucky in that regard, but it, it is a challenge and it's something that uh, you just have to stay vigilant about because I tell people all the time that just because you're in ninth place in your standings on May 23rd doesn't mean you're going to stay there and doesn't mean you don't have a chance of winning your league still. And Dave also said you owe it to the rest of the guys in your league to at least, you know, you should at least do the minimum moves. If you've got a guy hurt, replace him. If you've got a guy who's underperforming and there's replacements available in the fab pool, you should go out and and make an effort to acquire those guys because if you don't, you're leaving them for other guys who might uh, benefit in a way that they really shouldn't if you're giving it your all. And I think that, that point has some validity too, don't you? Oh, for sure. And not only that, especially if you're well, in roto, roto leagues or even in head-to-head leagues, your dismal play affects the overall standings of the league. And it's not fair to league members that leagues can sometimes be decided by who is being uh, vigilant and who's being complacent. You know, there's nothing worse than, you know, especially in like a head-to-head format, losing your league because someone gave up. And, you know, it has nothing to do with your good or bad play, but because someone else gave up and gave someone else a championship, that that shouldn't happen. And uh, I'm a big proponent of keeping leagues active, trying to remind owners when they're getting complacent. Uh, But, you know, I I also understand that life happens and not everybody uh, takes fantasy as seriously as I do or we do in the industry. Yeah, I've had that experience too, and I, I found that what you have to do is you have to pick your leagues. And if you're in a, if you find yourself in a league with guys who will quit, uh, and you can't convince yourself that they're going to, you know, be better in future years, then uh, you're probably better off just finding another league. I never thought about the head-to-head aspect of it, but gosh, it would sure uh, sure be an unfortunate if if you were a competitive team in first or second spot and chasing the pennant, and, and you played a guy when he was still trying. And therefore, maybe he beat you by a couple of points, and then later on he throws in the towel, and that's when your opponent in the overall race gets to play him and has runs to an easy win. That would really stink. Yeah, and it happens. It happened in Tout Wars, uh, and the Tout Wars had dead league last year. Um, you know, and it wasn't like a, an owner necessarily got uh, complacent or anything like that, but he had a medical emergency, wasn't able to set his lineup for the week, gave the person he was playing an easy victory, and that person ended up winning the league based on that uh and it was you know it was hard for for the person that he beat out because she had a fantastic chance at winning and probably should have 
uh, and lost out because a person, you know, ha- you know, had that medical emergency. And like I said, life happens. There's there's certain things you can't plan for, but for the most part, we can plan. If if you're going to make a commitment to something, commit to it and play it out throughout the season, even if your team's not very good. Well, you mentioned head to head, and of course, standard roto. Uh, do you play other formats as well? Uh, I, I'm in my first Audinu league this year. It is not going very well. <laughs> so um, I play a lot of Dynasty uh, and Keeper formats, some pretty deep ones. Uh, I keep meaning to try out score sheet, but I haven't had uh, the opportunity or, or the time uh, that I'm willing to devote to it yet. Uh, but one of these years, I'll definitely try out score sheet. For listeners who aren't familiar, explain what Audinu is. Um, I'm still kind of learning that myself. It's been uh, it, it's a uh, a FanGraphs runs a it, it can do it in points or in um, in, in roto form, but uh, it, it's not based necessarily on the traditional statistics. I'm still figuring out the point structure, and it hasn't gone super well for me because it's one of those leagues that you need to stay super vigilant on because man, people who love Audinu really love Audinu, and and they are all in. Uh, it's done based in an auction style, uh, but also kind of a a salary format in which, you know, if you drop your $5 player, you get that $5 back. Um, it, it breeds a lot of, uh, in-season work. Um, and it's been a really interesting format. I don't know that I'm necessarily going to stick with it. It may be a little bit too, uh, too high pressure for me concerning how many teams I do every year. Uh, but, uh, it's, uh, it's been an interesting journey and working at Fangraphs, I felt like I, I had to try it at least once. I looked at it a couple of years ago as well. And of course, uh, at the time I was a very busy person. I'm still a fairly, bar- fairly busy person, but it was worse then. And so I decided not to play. But one of the things that really intrigued me about it was this salary arbitration. Have you got your head around that yet? Uh, yes, it's, it's really interesting and I kind of like it. So everybody has a salary attached to it. Um, but there is an arbitration period uh, prior to the draft or the auction, because it is an auction, um, in which you have a certain amount of dollars that you can throw onto players on opposing team uh, teams. So if you see someone as Mike Trout for 45 bucks, and you go, hey, in this league, especially with inflation, Mike Trout should be a $60 player, you can throw, you know, I think $1 to $3 on Mike Trout to start bumping up the price. Now, everybody in the league can do it, um, and I believe you have either 3 to $5 per team uh, that you can throw on players, uh, and, you know, and so you know, five different teams may throw 3 bucks on Mike Trout, and it really escalates the prices quickly. And makes it so you can't get these $1 keepers and keep them forever because as soon as they start getting good, everybody's going to toss money on it. Uh, and it's a really interesting idea as opposed to having a set standard uh, amount that keepers go up by to really influence it by the perception of your league mates, uh, I think is a really, really cool and different idea. I, I actually, it's my one of my favorite parts of new. When I saw it, I thought that was the most interesting part of it because in the Keeper League uh, that I played in for many years, one of the big weaknesses was there were all these relatively artificial methods of acquiring players way under value. The number one being a uh, a farm draft, which allowed you to bring up a guy and then he start him at a, a, at a very low salary. And this is a, a mirror image of Major League Baseball in a way, but 
because of the uh, ability to keep the player. You had well, Mike Trout was a good example. He gets called up. Uh, you you put him on the guy who had him put him on his roster for five bucks, and then he gets to keep him for five bucks for another couple of years, and then he raises him to like twenty five bucks, and you now he's had him for eight or nine years total, and and. I think that there should be a mechanism in place at all times that allows the good players like that to re-enter the pool relatively soon so they get more fairly valued soon. I completely agree with you. I was in a long time. My my first ever league was an AL-only keeper league, uh, and that kind of thing happened with uh, Mark Teixeira, actually, when he got traded over, the guy who... Uh, got him uh, through waivers, and back then you could only pick up someone uh, if they had if there was a natural opening. So you had to have a player who was on the DL on your active roster, or you had to have someone who had just been sent down to the minors. And so it was really a lot of luck based on how you were going to get players. Right. And then so he gets him at uh, ten dollars uh, in this league. Well, he's you know probably a thirty-five dollar player. And now he gets him for ten dollars for for three years and gets to long term him for another five to six years, and all of a sudden he's pretty much had Mark Teixeira for the length that he was viable in the American League, which was you know a bit unfair. Uh, and it took a long time to get my league to kind of adjust to modern day play of fantasy baseball. When I was in uh, my first league, also was American League only uh, auction, a four by four, and uh, I brought up a couple of ways that I thought we could improve the auction process, uh, including um, when you're auctioning for a guy uh, at the draft, you can state the number of years you're willing to put in as well as the amount of salary, and that to increase the bid, you either had to up the number of years or raise the salary and keep the number of years. You could never go backwards. And I, I thought, and then when the contract was over, there would be no extensions. So if you wanted to gamble on four or five years, you had to put the gamble in right at the start of the process. And then uh, you had to pay your league fees for as many years as you claimed you were going to be in because we were worried uh, about the possibility, of course, of somebody saying, I'll take him for 10 years and then winning the league and quitting. So uh, people don't like those kind of changes because it upsets how they value players. And it, in those days, it was a, a problem also because the available information this is back in the 90s we didn't have the internet so it was all the newsstand magazines and they all value their players pretty similarly and it threw the valuation process for a real loop i'm actually in a league that has a similar auction process we use uh almost real life kind of uh dollar values in terms of uh of bidding but you bid uh, based on years and based on uh, money, and then there's a, some sort of formula that goes into figuring out, okay, this is how this player values this contract, um, and then you have, if you want to outbid someone, you have to beat that bid amount by a certain amount, by 10% or something, uh, in order for them to go to, but uh, it allows you to say, okay, I'm going to get this player for... Uh, 15 million dollars for five years and someone to go well you know what? i'm going to give them 25 million dollars a year for two years um and really kind of changes the way the game's played and then it allows keepers to kind of get thrown back into the pool uh at, at different times um and allows you to really kind of uh run your team the way you want so if you want all of your players to be uh, off of their contracts at the same time you can do that you just have to be willing to pay the right amount 
I think that's a great idea because that's what major league teams really do. It, it's all starting to remind me of a game I heard about many years ago now where you, you were the general manager of a team, and I think the scoring was based on actual how much money your team made because they equated wins to attendance and you were trying to pile up uh, wins, uh, not pitcher wins, but just wins in general based on runs above uh, replacement and so forth. It was a really interesting concept. I should also mention in AutoNew, uh, they don't have fab. They have, uh, we like every so often, they just have a player auction for all the free agents. And you can get your free agent for exactly what you think he's worth, assuming that nobody else wants to bid, unlike the uh, blind auction that we use for most fab proceedings. Yeah, and I mean, they, there's pretty much auctions going on whenever someone wants, they see a player on the waiver wire and they just start an auction and everybody has a certain amount of time to bid. Um, it's an interesting format because as opposed to having these blind bids, you're actually getting to bid against people uh, and, and go ahead. And there's a lot of strategy involved in it. Uh, I, I've seen in other odd new leagues where uh, players like John Carlos Stanton get dropped into the pool uh, and you, then you start seeing him going for 70, 80 bucks because people are trying to trying to get that player for the long run and they may not be able to keep him at that price, but uh, it gives them a chance to actually go out and really acquire a player via fab that is super impact. Before we get on talking about uh, Roto, write up your column at... Uh rotographs.com. I'm curious about one story that popped up the, recently in baseball because I think it has the potential to really uh, stir things up. And that was when the Rays started Sergio Romo on Saturday night and then again on Sunday to pitch the top of the order for the opposing team. I think he pitched an inning on Saturday and then 1.2 innings on Sunday. It worked for the most part. It uh, wasn't successful in terms of winning the game on Sunday, but they did win on Saturday and it looked like it worked. If it does work, if they keep doing it and it keeps working, how can this affect how the game is played on the field and, and how will it affect fantasy? I think if it does work, uh, it'll be a slow process before other teams really want to implement it. And it's interesting that it's a guy like Sergio Romo who hasn't been a great pitcher necessarily uh, recently in his career, that he's the one being employed. Um, but that's largely because of his splits and uh, just how good he is against right-handed hitting as opposed to left-handed hitting, who he's uh, terrible against. Um, and it just worked out that, uh, you know, going up against the Angels, whose top half of their lineup doesn't change very often and is, is right-handed heavy. Uh, and so they figured they could try this out. I think it's uh, a really interesting idea. Um I think it'll be harder to employ on a regular basis, but there are some, you know, really right-handed teams, especially in the American League, and uh, the Rays may be able to take advantage of something like this um, in order to get past, you know, maybe some of these big bats at the beginning of a lineup with a guy like Romo. Uh, it has interesting ramifications in fantasy uh, because you're going to see that people can use this to get. Uh, get around starts limits. And so if you have a weekly starts limit or a yearly starts limit, well, you can start maybe some of these raised pitchers uh, that uh, are not actually technically starting because Sergio Romo is. So um, you can, you know, use Yarborough and, and maybe try to, you know, sneak some extra strikeouts, sneak some extra uh, wins to, for your team on a, in a week or in a year uh, without having to use up any of your starts limits. Um, so it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting kind of loophole for fantasy 
Um, and it actually gives maybe some of these race pitchers who probably better fit in, in long relief uh, a chance for more wins because they're, they're not having to actually go uh, you know, five or, or six innings in order to pick up a win. And I think the uh, telling factor that's going to determine whether people start doing it beyond uh, Tampa Bay and, and beyond just a certain right-handed op- opposition is if somebody starts winning a lot of games doing this, then they'll start copying it. Up till then, it'll be something kooky. We're already seeing uh, responses from the, some of the players, from some of the managers saying, oh, it's, you know, it's a weird thing. I don't like weird things. But that's what they say about everything just before they adopt it. Yeah, we heard the same type of thing with the bullpen usage and how that's been ramped up. You know, certain managers were very opposed to it, but now now you see lots of managers, you know, using their bullpen uh, in a, in a more modern fashion. So I I think you're right. As if this works and the Rays can garner some success from it, uh, I think it'll be something that other managers try out uh, here and there and could catch on. You know, you have to have a pitcher like this who is really good against one side unless you're going to, I mean, would it be interesting to see a, a team go, hey, you know what, I'm going to throw my closer out there to start and, and, you know, because he can shut down anybody and if this team's got a really strong top half of the lineup, maybe I can get an inning or two innings from uh, from my closer or, or from my elite uh, relief pitcher. Um, I think that would shake things up a little bit more than maybe just a strong side platoon guy. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Justin Mason from Fangraphs and Rotographs and a few other places that we'll talk about. And Justin, I, I mentioned that uh, at Rotographs you have a regular column called the Roto Write-Up. Uh, how does it work and how often do you write it? Uh, it's, a, it's a daily article really covering kind of um, whatever the author feels is interesting uh, news from the previous day. Uh, I tend to focus uh, a lot on injuries or actionable news, whether it being bullpens. Uh, and then I try to throw in a little bit of humor or, or you know, maybe some trade rumor stuff now and again. Uh, I write it four to five times a week. Uh, and my, my partner, uh, Mike Warner, he, he, he takes the other two days uh, that I don't do on the weekends. Um, it's, a, it's a fun little article because I have a lot of freedom. Uh, I can pretty much, you know, do what I want with it as long as it's uh, it comes out at 7.15 in the morning every day. On the May 21st Roto write-up, uh, you covered the promotion of Juan Soto. This is a pretty big story, and it's been well covered, but what's uh, your impression of his immediate potential? I think he is a guy that um, he can hit for average right away. And I think he has a, a, a very good eye, and I think he's going to walk a fair amount. And we saw him yesterday uh, garner garner a few walks, um, and I think that is fairly valuable when we're talking about in terms of a context of uh, you know a high strikeout league and um, and guys who you know aren't necessarily as patient maybe as we've seen in years past. This is a guy who could be a high OBP, high average guy. He has pop. I think he'll grow more into it uh, as he fills out and gets older. But I mean, we saw with that first home run that it was opposite field uh, that there is a lot of power in his bat. I just don't know how often we're going to see it early on in his career. I think he's a guy who could probably hit 15 to 20 home runs rest of the way, which is great. Um, but if people think that he's a 40 home run bat now, uh, that may be a little bit wishful thinking. It sounds like you think maybe the longer term, it might not be such wishful thinking. No, I think longer term, this guy is a stud. 
Uh, I think he is a future 300 hitter with 40 home run potential. Uh, I, he may steal a couple extra bags now as he's younger. Uh, I think as he fills out, he I think those will probably dissipate. But I, I think we're talking about a future guy who is 35 to 40 home runs with a, a premium average in fantasy baseball. A borderline Miguel Cabrera type? Maybe not quite that good, but I, I think it uh, it is a guy who has you know he has a, a premium hit tool, and and I think he's he's shown it all the way through the minors. I mean, his worst triple slash through the minors uh, was three twenty three seventy four forty. I mean, <laughs> and he breezed through every level of minor leagues. He's never struggled. Uh, those struggles may eventually come at some point early on in his career, and maybe this year in, in the majors, but. At this point, he's never struggled, and it's hard to say that he will. Now, let me put you on the spot long-term. Juan Soto or Vlad Guerrero Jr.? Oh, I think it's Vlad Guerrero, because I think Vlad Guerrero is Miguel Cabrera 2.0. I, I, think, he, I think he can do exactly, uh, exactly what Miggy was. You know, the question is, will he? Um, he, you know, and he'll definitely move off of, uh, off a of third base at some point. So he'll become a first baseman, which may make him a little bit less valuable. But ultimately, I think the ceiling is through the roof for a guy like Miguel or for a guy like uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr. Yeah, moving to first base didn't hurt uh, didn't hurt uh, Miguel Cabrera too much. Uh, you also provide streaming pitcher options. What are you looking for when you're trying to choose a streaming pitcher beyond the obvious? Uh, a lot of times I'm attacking matchups. I'm looking for. I'm, I'm looking to see who who's uh, been poor against right-handed pitching or left-handed pitching. Or uh, I'm looking at parks. Uh, and then you know there are guys I like. I tend to go back to the well with uh, some of the certain guys. Usually they're they're guys that don't necessarily have sexy profiles, uh, but are pitching well at the time. And I'm willing to ride the the hot streak. Uh, and so far uh, this year, I think I've done fairly well, and I did fairly well last year. I was able to, uh, you know, have for a season, I believe, uh, a sub four ERA, and what would have uh, amounted to uh, over two hundred strikeouts in terms of adding to your roster if you streamed every day with my picks. Not bad. Uh, what do you like in particular about Matt Boyd? You mentioned. You know, he's one of those guys. He doesn't have a sexy profile, but he's been pitching well. And at some point, you know, I, I think the the addition of their new pitching coach helps. Uh, but at some point, you got to just ride the hot streak. And you know, when he starts to slow down, or if he gets injured, like we saw yesterday, then you can kind of jump off. But he's one of those guys that nobody is going to run to their waiver wire necessarily to make sure they have a Matt Boyd on their roster. But he can be a really usable pitcher. Um, and he's not super volatile, so he's not one of those guys that I'm super worried is going to, you know, put one of those seven to run uh, days up uh, and really destroy my ratios, especially when he's pitching at home because you know, the, the Tigers' ballpark uh, is is nice and large. Well, you mentioned uh, that you like to talk about trade rumors once in a while. I saw in your May 22nd Roto Writer Edition uh, some trade rumors, including that somebody somewhere is actually looking at Francisco Liriano. Can this be true? <laughs> it seems weird, but Liriano's been oddly good this year. Uh, I mean, I, in that piece, um, I, I called him a fantasy zombie, which is a, a, 
a throwback to uh, the old Fantasy Focus podcast that Matthew Barry used to do. Um, and he, he he is. He's been really good this year. Uh, he's on a short-term contract. The, the Tigers aren't going to win anything. So someone is going to go and say, listen, I don't have to spend much in terms of my prospect capital in order to get this guy. You know, I may just have to give up, you know, a mediocre low A type guy um, or even just cash considerations or something like that for, for Francisco Liriano. Um, and that's going to be going out and spending a huge amount on like a Chris Archer. You know, someone of that ilk that has, you know, a name and is younger, maybe has years of control. Because uh, next year is a pretty big free agent class in terms of what's going to be out there. And there are going to be teams that want to save the, that long-term money uh, for, for the 2019 free agent class. Atlanta cut Jose Bautista. He just signed with the Mets. Uh, but you reported a persistent rumor that Atlanta might be looking at a deal to acquire Mike Moustakas from Kansas City. Makes a lot of sense, actually. But then uh, Atlanta, they cut Bautista. Then they say third base is now the property of uh, Johan Camargo. Between the news and the noise, how likely do you really think a Moustakas deal is in the cards for Atlanta? I think it probably has more to do with the development of Austin Riley. And if they feel that one, they're still competing at the trade deadline and that Austin Riley isn't going to be ready to make an immediate impact for their team. Then I think they could go after uh, a guy like Mike Moustakis, who's on a short term, very cheap deal. Um, won't take a, a ton in prospects to go get, but you know, one, the Braves have a loaded farm system still, and, and they can, uh, they have some pieces they can still move, uh, and that that swing uh, in, uh, in in SunTrust could be deadly. I mean, left-handed with that short porch in uh, in SunTrust could rack up a ton of home runs. If Austin Riley continues to mash. Um, and doesn't show any weaknesses, they may decide, well, we've already brought up a bunch of other young guys. Maybe we can just bring up Riley, and he fits the bill. Um, but if for some reason they want to hold him down and they're not ready to bring him up, I think Moustakis would be a really nice fit for them. You also mentioned injuries, and you reported that the Yankees are close to bringing back Greg Bird from the DL. How do you suspect the Yankees would slot Bird into what has been a really productive, robust lineup? Well, I would assume he would slot towards the bottom. Um, I know they've tried in the past to, you know, slot him towards, you know, kind of in the middle of that lineup. Um, you know, they seem to really like him. Uh, you know, that lineup is just, like you said, it's been so robust and so good. Like, I don't understand how you could move uh, down guys who have really established themselves in that Yankees lineup. So... I'm not. I haven't been the biggest of Greg Bird fan, uh, so I, I've been very, very critical of him. I think that people are still buying in a lot on the prospect hype. Uh, that he really has only been able to stay on the field in small stretches for the last few years, um, and and been, you know, usable in terms. Or he's never really been usable in terms of fantasy. So, you know, except for that little stretch in 2015 before he got hurt. He hasn't been a very good player, and so I think people are kind of maybe counting their chickens before they hatch a little bit with him. He's not a guy that I'm super interested in acquiring. 
Similar sort of story in Tampa Bay. They recalled uh, Willie Adamas as a temporary replacement. I think Joey Wendell had a parental leave. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and all he did, uh, all mm-hmm. Adamas did, was hit a home run in his first game off Chris Sale, which is uh, getting something done. And you said this could cause the Rays similar roster problems. What goes on here? I think unless he hits really, really well and um, and really just lights the world on fire for you know the next two days, uh, I think he probably gets sent back down. Uh, though he shouldn't. I mean, this guy has been major league ready for a, a long time, um, and they just continue to hold him down to to do the service time games. Uh, you know, he's just murdering uh, AAA right now, 311, 387, 466. Um, he really on fire uh, right before his call-up, I believe, hit a home run the day before he got called up. And then, like I said, took uh, Chris Sale deep. He did strike out in his other three at-bats, so that's not necessarily great. But I think he's really going to have to hit uh, really, really well over these next two games to kind of... Uh, ensure he has a, a spot locked on that roster. But I don't think Joey Wendell or even Daniel Robertson, who's been great this year, um, are huge impediments uh, in, in the long term. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Justin Mason from Fangraphs, Rotographs, and a few other places that we'll get to later on. Uh, you also appear at Fangraphs doing uh, some online chats. These are really entertaining. I have to congratulate you for that. How often are you in the box? I'm supposed to be there every Tuesday at noon, um, and I, I, I've missed I missed my last one. Unfortunately, I uh, had a family issue that popped up last minute, wasn't able to do it. But uh, now that the summer's here and my kid is out of school, uh, I will probably be doing a little bit longer chats because I'm stuck here uh, at home with, with, with my daughter during the day. So, uh, you know, I, I do at least an hour. Um, and usually closer to 90 minutes, but they may push closer to two hours uh, here in the summer. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you get a lot of uh, interesting questions, some that are a little bit zany, uh, you know, and jokey. But uh, it's been a, it's been a real interesting experience trying to bust through that many questions in a short period of time. You said in the chat uh, in response to a question about Kevin Gausman that you're always a sucker for Gausman. Uh, and then right after the chat, he went out and gave up six earned runs and four and two-thirds. And then just the other night, he was uh, terrific again. Well, and I think there's exactly the problem with Kevin Gausman because every time you start to buy in because he does something amazing like he, he did last night I mean, where he struck out 10, ten White Sox, then he goes and does the thing, what he did against Boston, where he gives up six or runs. Um, you know, you see the untapped potential with him. I don't know that he ever puts it all together, but I've always been willing to bet on him. And I mean, so far this year, I mean, outside of, you know, two really bad outings, the first one of the year and then the one against Boston that you referenced, uh, he's been fantastic. And even with both those outings giving uh, him six turn runs, uh, he still has a three four eight ERA, so uh, I think Gosman is a guy that is worth uh, gambling on. You just have to be smart with some of his starts. On a similar topic, you responded to a question about Patrick Corbin of Arizona by saying that he scares you. Uh, he scares me too. But what's your rationale? It's the velocity, um, and I mean, I, I've never been a huge Patrick. Uh, Corbin guy, but um, 
you can't deny that when the stuff is on that it's not fantastic. And in, in through his first few starts of the year, he was unhittable, but he hasn't uh, had an average fastball velocity of you know over ninety uh, miles an hour really um, in his last four starts. Uh, the the breaking ball doesn't look as sharp um, in the same way that it, it did be uh, kind of at the beginning of the season. He's got a long history of being disappointing and of being injured. You have to wonder if this is, you know, this, you know, kind of coming back home to roost once again. Um, and I just, I, I never want to bank on one of these guys. And I think everybody got so enthused and he looked so good early on that people were starting to put him up there in the upper echelons of maybe top 10, top 20 starter rest of the way. And I, maybe I am just a little bit more stubborn but I, I don't tend to jump guys who were outside of my top 50 at a position into the top 10 or top 20 arbitrarily like that. I want to see a longer track record of health and performance before I do. And that, those are my biggest fears with uh, Patrick Corbin. Might be a good example, but you mentioned that Chris Archer's having some shaky results this year. But you think he'll, and I'm quoting here, he'll figure it out. What does that mean? What's he going to figure out? And why do you have confidence in Chris Archer? Because he has a long track record, and I mean, what he's done over the course of his career has usually been pretty good. Now, I mean, I think he was one of those guys that I, I faded a little bit in draft season because I felt his name value was maybe a little bit greater than his actual value. But if you look, he has begun to turn around. Over his last four starts during the month of May, uh, he's got a 3.04 ERA. Uh, you know, he's gotten the home runs, which have been a real problem for him, uh, down. Uh, he's gotten the walks down, and he's t kind of turning back into the guy that he's always been. I, I think we overreact early on in, in, in fantasy baseball. I think part of it is we put so much time and effort into draft season, and when things go horribly right or horribly wrong, um, we, we really react a little bit too strongly. Um, and part of that, I think, comes from a, a fantasy football mentality where there's only 16 games and uh, you have to make moves quickly, you have to react fast. Well, fantasy baseball is, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, and people, you know, after a guy struggles for a month, want to just dump him off your team. Well, you still got four more months to go. Um, and you, the last thing you want is to absorb all this bad work and allow someone else to absorb all of the good work. Um, and I just... I tend to, uh, I tend to believe in guys that have shown a track record of success, and Chris Archer is one of those guys. In general, Justin, how loyal are you to players that you like, and what does it take for a pitcher like Chris Archer to fall out of favor versus a guy like Patrick Corbin who is never in favor? I am a fairly loyal guy when it comes to my players and guys that I like, but I also watch a lot of games, and unless I see something in someone's mechanics, um, I see velocity drops, I see skill drops, uh, those are the type of things that really start bringing up red flags for me, and, and that's one of the things you know that, I, and that I've been seeing in Patrick Corbin that scares me that I haven't necessarily seen in uh, in Chris Archer for me you know I think there's been some pitch, pitch mix issues some game calling issues and then just a guy making mistakes and that you know sometimes happens sometimes you know you just you leave pitches in the wrong spot you challenge a guy at the wrong time and they're going to make you pay for it um, 
you know, and sometimes that burns me. You know, I, I definitely have leagues this year where I've been burned because I have not been willing to give up on a guy or at least move a guy into my reserve list. Um, but for the most part, I think talent uh, will supersede a lot of that, and it usually wins out at the end. Somebody on the chat asked about making a deal to acquire Joe Jimenez, the uh, Detroit closer of the future, because he was in a keeper league team, and you said never to invest in a closer of the future. Why not roll them dice? Because they rarely work out. <laughs> that's and, and that's the truth. And it, it's one of those things where we see kind of these guys who are flamethrowers in the back end of bullpens and these, these premium relief uh, prospects. I mean, they rarely work out very well. I mean, Rondon was one uh, that hasn't worked out recently. I mean, how many years did people go to the well for Joel Zumaye? It just it rarely works out. Um, and typically, the guys that end up uh, manning those premium spots back in, in uh, as closers get shuffled around anyways. I mean, we talk about the volatility of closers in redraft leagues. How are you supposed to then project out two or three or four years and expect that you're actually going to pay huge dividends later on? I think chasing relief pitchers in dynasty leagues or even keeper formats is kind of a fool's errand. And finally, you said you've never been a fan of Kyle Schwarber, who's sporting an 878 OPS. That's not bad. Why the pessimism? I think there's a lot of flaws to Kyle Schwarber's game. Um, you know, one of the things that he's really struggled with uh, through the course of his career, and it's it's happening this year as well, um, is he's not good against left-handed pitching. Uh, and the Cubs have they're doing a fairly decent job of protecting him against him. He's only even gotten 22 at bats so far this year against lefties. Um, I and I think he's just so bad defensively. And that, to me, really spells a lot of trouble for him. Uh, he's going to get replaced late in ball games, especially if uh, teams want to bring in left-handed pitching against him. Uh, I just don't see him ever turning into a complete player. He needs the DH more than any player in Major League Baseball to come to the National League, and it's just not happening anytime soon. Uh, and so I, I just never – I think the the hype on Kyle Schwarber is uh, never really caught up to the the on the on – the, field talent well justin uh, you've hit a home run so far so uh, we'll take a break here uh, you can get into the dugout and take a breather and we'll get you back out for your next turn at the plate uh, a few minutes later on in the show sounds great justin mason is the owner of the great fantasy baseball invitational a writer at Fangraphs and rotographs and a broadcaster on the tout wars hour radio show on the fantasy sports network and he'll be back a little later on in the show. But coming up next, it's our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. That ball hit deep in the left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch! What a play! Wade Wise makes the catch! What a play by Wise! Mercy! What a play by Wise! Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this game. Alexei! Yes! 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 History!
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's the National League and Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. One of the most important things we keep track of as fantasy baseball players is what's going on in bullpens because of that saves category. And uh, the latest bullpen news we have is is in Cincinnati, not that there's a lot of saves to be had, but uh, Razel Iglesias has been sent to the DL with a biceps problem. That's going to create some opportunities in the Cincinnati bullpen. Uh, How does that shake out? We have Tom Kephart on the story for Baseball HQ playing time today. It looks like it will be short-term, but in that short-term, it looks like veteran uh, right-hand reliever Jared Hughes would appear to be first in line for saves. Um, Hughes is currently displaying his career-best skills, a 131 BPV, uh, 3.06 XERA, with a strong foundation, a 67% first strike rate, 14% swinging strike rate, rate 20 uh, strikeouts in uh, only six walks and 28 innings pitched. So, uh, he looks like like he'll get the first opportunity, and I, I believe got a save on Thursday night. Uh, there are caveats with Hughes. He's unlikely to exert an uh, likely to uh, exert an effect in the short term. He's been very heavily used, um, currently on pace for 80 plus innings pitched. So if he has to do too much work out of there, things could begin to wear down. That would be a career high for Hughes. Um, but at this point, uh, it doesn't look like it'll be a long term thing with Iglesias. And uh, Hughes should get uh, make get a save opportunity or two over the next ten days. I know they have a couple of decent left-handers in the bullpen as well. Uh, Amir Garrett and Wandy Peralta have been pretty effective this year. Uh, could they figure into the saves mix because of left-right matchups? They might indeed. Um, both of them could get get a shot depending on how things are are going any particular night. Garrett has uh, thirty-one strikeouts, ten walks, and twenty-seven innings pitched to one fourteen. BPV, uh, which is all pretty strong, but only a 53% first strike pitch strike rate. So uh, he could uh, be prone perhaps to bouts of wildness. Uh, and in fact, he's issued eight walks in his previous eight appearances, spanning the last 9.1 innings. So uh, his control is already deteriorating a bit. The Reds also activated Michael Lorenzen, who has some closing experience from the disabled list, and recalled uh, right-handed pitcher Tanner Rainey from AAA. Uh, either of these two guys figure to be in the saves mix at all? Lorenzen spent a lot of uh, 2017 in a setup role. Uh, those roles diminished in the latter part of the season. He's also struggled throwing strikes, so likely uh, have to show improvement on his 2017 skills, including a 52% first pitch strike rate and a 3.7 control before he's going to be trusted with uh, with uh, high leverage situations. Uh, Brainy had a very disastrous uh, major league uh, debut in April. He allowed seven earned runs and two innings pitched in two appearances and uh, two strikeouts, five walks, uh, likely be limited to very low leverage work, uh, unlikely to be in the saves mix. In Arizona, boy, it seems like all year we've been talking about the outfield in Phoenix. Uh, now there's a, a new development. Uh, Steven Souza is back on the DL with a pectoral problem. And uh, once again, we have the question, um, what's going to happen out there? Rob Carroll covers the Diamondbacks for playing time today. And uh, what does Rob report is the likely outcome of the playing time shuffle with Souza on the DL? Well, so far, since the first three games that Souza was out, the miss Chris Owens had been the right field starter and could continue to see some time out there. But 
it looks like Socrates Brito arrives in, in Arizona playing some of the best baseball of his career uh, and may, in fact, get some, really get some starts. He's slashing 323, 365, 437 in 158 at-bats at AAA Reno. Now, we've got to remember that Socrates Brito has been in that position before. Uh, he b- looked very interesting in 2015 and then flamed out completely in 2016 uh, w- uh, with a 19% hit rate that uh, really drove him down to a 179 batting average. Uh, and didn't even get a chance at the at the uh, uh, Arizona in 2017 because of those those kind of struggles. So technically, Socrates Brito was still a rookie. Uh, his 58 games have revealed a league average 77% contact rate, 98 PX, and a little bit of speed, a 118 speed score, uh, and an underdeveloped batting eye, a 0.10 for his batting eye. So he'll likely see some playing time, uh, but it's probably not going to be against left-handed pitchers. Uh, Gatsumi's currently one for 16. A little earlier in the season, we had some uh, injury issues facing Washington Nationals outfielder, a utility guy also, uh, Howie Kendrick. Uh, he's ruptured his Achilles tendon now. He's going to undergo surgery, and he's going to miss the rest of the season. What is the playing time effect beyond the fact that Juan Soto was called up and homered in his first game, I think on his first pitch? Yeah, well, you know, I think the playing time effect is Juan Soto was in the majors and, and likely to see... Uh, uh, considerably more playing time at this point. Um, and so we'll have to see. It'll be interesting to see how Juan Soto does. Of course, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of hype with uh, Juan Soto hitting that home run at this point. Uh, as of as of Thursday night, was three for 10, three runs scored, that one home run, three RBIs, uh, no stolen bases. So a, a 300 batting average over his first 10 at-bats. Uh, the thing to watch is probably a contact rate of 70%. Uh, if the strikeouts don't get too high, Juan Soto could certainly have an impact. Uh, certainly one of the best prospects in baseball. We've got to remember he's only 19 years old uh, and playing for a contender in the majors at this point in his career. When Juan Soto got called up, of course, I went to the Baseball HQ Daily Call-Ups report. He's a 9C prospect in Baseball HQ's rating system. A 9 is a perennial all-star, and that C grade means he's got about a 50% chance of achieving that ceiling. But if you kind of extrapolate backwards, Nick, uh, that means that he's almost a lock to be a pretty good regular everyday player with a lot of upside. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, let's see if if there are rookie struggles, he's got to get past those. But uh, he's the kind of player who could be in the big leagues a long time uh, with excellent upside. And uh, as we said, only 19 years old, so he's got got a ways to develop. He's the number two prospect in the Nationals organization, according to Baseball HQ, and number 28 overall. I think he's a he's a, obviously a long-term guy, but uh, in the short term, I, we have to say that even though he's got talent and he started his major league career with the splash, as I mentioned, uh, it's still likely to be a very fluid situation with Juan Soto. You can't expect that he's going to hit a home run every game or every third game. There's going to be some growing pains here, wouldn't you think? Oh yeah, definitely. We've got to remember that when a young guy comes up like that and makes a makes a splash, uh, which certainly could happen over the next few weeks with Juan Soto. Major league pitchers adapt; they're very good at adapting. That's why they're in the majors. And as the guys begin to see film on him, as they begin to face face him for the second time, uh, those pitchers will begin to figure out what pitches he can hit and what he can't hit. Uh, and so, I wouldn't expect a sustained uh, upward uh, trajectory right off the bat. Maybe he'll do great for two or three weeks. Uh, then watch for him to plateau a little bit as the pitchers begin to uh, uh, begin to, to take their toll on him. 
And it's worth noting that uh, while he's got a very good bat, uh, Juan Soto is not a top-flight defender. He's probably corner outfield at best, probably left field, given the fact he takes. Uh, he's pretty slow afoot. He doesn't take good routes to the ball, and he's not uh, terrific at throwing the ball. So it could, there could be some defensive challenges here that he's going to have to work through as well. And Nick, we know that not just with catchers, we know about them, but all players when they first come up... The, the game is faster at the major league level, and as a defender, that causes some pressure, and that pressure can move from the field into the batter's box, uh, causing a player to struggle at the plate because he's not doing well in the field. Yes, that very definitely happens. We, we know that happens. And so when you've got someone like Juan Soto, who is a, who is a marginal defender, uh, especially if the miscues that, uh, that he makes out there uh, begin to uh, to cause problems in terms of the other team scoring runs, uh, that begins to get inside your head. So, so the things that happen in the field definitely affect what goes on at the plate. In Los Angeles, Rich Hill, boy, it seems like this guy has nothing but injury trouble uh, and blister trouble, and he once again has a blister that's going to cause him to miss what the club is calling significant time. Uh, apparently the blister sliced open during a start. Ouch is all I can say about that. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the uh, Dodgers, for playing time today, and uh, what does Jock have to report as far as what goes on with Rich Hill on the DL? Well, it looks like now that Rich Hill could miss a significant time. That may be as at least four weeks, perhaps even more time than that. Um, the immediate beneficiary of Hill's uh, misfortune would be appear to be swingman Ross Stripling. And Stripling has, uh, has made three consecutive starts now in which he's been very, very effective. Uh, Stripling is still flying a little bit under the radar, I think, in fantasy leagues because he's seen as a as a swingman, a reliever uh, who's who's not made a huge mark in the past. But those three last three starts, 15 innings pitched, 21 strikeouts, two walks, three earned runs. So it looks as though he'll stay in the rotation uh, for a while. And if he keeps pitching the way he's been, he can stay in the rotation even once Hill comes back. Um, the, the Dodgers have been faced with multiple injuries right now. Brock Stewart, uh, swingman Brock Stewart, who was a AAA Oklahoma City, uh, came up and pitched, uh, I think, on Wednesday night. Um, but it looks as though certainly Stripling is the one who's going to get the, the immediate um, impact of, of uh, Hill going on the DL. And I think it's someone worth taking a look at in fantasy leagues. He's slowly been building up his pitch count. Uh, first start was, uh, was four innings, second start, five point. One innings, last start, 60 innings, a few more pitches in each start, and getting to the point where he's, uh, he's ready to stay longer into the ball game. So take a look at Ross Stripling if he's on your waiver wire. The Dodgers also have a very deep uh, farm as far as pitching is concerned. One of their prospects, a young man named Dennis Santana, was promoted to AAA, did well. Should he be on our radar? Well, you know, Dennis Santana certainly, uh, certainly is someone to look at. He's developing very rapid, tossed, uh, rapidly tossed 45 innings in the high minors uh, this year, 2.22 ERA, uh, 62 strikeouts to 14 walks, uh, and a big ground ball tilt because of a plus sinker. So already on the 40-man roster, roster, it looks as though he will get promoted inevitably and perhaps uh, sooner rather than later. So certainly someone to keep uh, keep tabs on. And finally, Nick, uh, the speculator column is one of my favorite columns. Uh, Ray Murphy used to do it now. It's the province of Ryan Bloomfield. We used to work here at Baseball HQ Radio as well. And uh, Ryan took an interesting concept, I thought, this week, 
The uh, baseball forecaster in some of the player write-ups has an upside or downside message tacked onto the end uh, where the uh, the analyst says, uh, here's what I think of this guy, but here's the upside or here's the downside. And this week, what Ryan did was he updated some of those upside uh, comments uh, looking at uh, four players from each league who had additional upside beyond what was uh, stated in the forecaster based on what's happened so far this year. Uh, in the National League, for instance, pitchers Kenta Maeda and Nick Pavetta get better upsides. Shortstop Trevor Story gets an upside as well. But the guy I'm really interested in here is Brandon Belt, because my question, Nick, uh, to you as a National League guy is, is this the year finally Brandon Belt is getting it all put together? It certainly begins to look like that in the in the early going. Belt has never hit more than 20 home runs in a season, uh, but he's one of only four hitters at this point with a 150-plus uh, XPX every year from 215 through 2017. Uh, he's hitting 313 so far with 11 home runs through his first 160 at-bats. Um, his shorter swing is generating a lot of loft, 50% fly ball rate, making lots of hard contact, 135 hard contact index, uh, and doing so with a reasonable strikeout rate. Now, his home park, AT&T Park, is not going to do any favors for him. Uh, it's a 47% minus impact on left-handed on uh, left-handed hitter home runs. But at this point, we were looking at uh, seven home runs and 11 home runs from Brandon Belt. Seven of those had come in his home park. He, we've already tagged him with an upside of, of 30 home runs, but 11 home runs in the first uh, six weeks of the season uh, – Maybe we didn't go far enough. Maybe it should have been 40 home runs for Brandon Belt. And the caveat always with Belt is if he can stay healthy. If he can stay healthy and if he can make some contact, I think is another area of concern. Uh, since 2014, it's been 70%, 70%, 73, 73. And, the, and this year back to 71. He, he, and his walk rate is down slightly this year as well. Could it be that he's selling out a little bit for power and that could, uh, in the long run, not be a, a successful strategy? That's that's certainly possible. I mean, but but we we know at least that Brandon Belt has a has a decent uh, a decent batting eye, so that uh, he can always perhaps if he if he seems to be selling out, head back in the direction he's always been, uh, which is a, a really good batting eye guy. At, at this point, a zero point five three batting eye, a seventy one percent contact rate, which as you said are historically not as strong as they've been in the past for Brandon Belt. But uh, we're we're dealing with a guy here with a lot of major league experience. Uh, and if he finds himself beginning to struggle because he's selling out for power, uh, could in fact uh, head back the right direction, we would hope, very quickly. The other concern I have here, Nick, and just hear me out, is that power index and expected power index to some degree rely on uh, on the outcomes, that is, doubles and home runs and so forth, total bases. And in the past, Belt has had some pretty impressive power index numbers, 150, 145, and some pretty impressive expected power index numbers of 156, 163, and yet they've never quite translated to home runs. And uh, I think that what uh, Ryan is speculating is that maybe this is happening now, but it could also be maybe not. Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things. We've, Belt has always had a lot of doubles and yeah. those things. Uh, some of those are translating now perhaps into home runs. And maybe maybe that will not continue all season. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, he's always hit the ball hard. He's had a, a very strong expected power index, as you said. Uh, and so maybe this, this upper trend will not continue uh, throughout the year, but certainly worth watching. 
And uh, you mentioned hitting the ball hard. He has a, a 131 hard contact index, 30% above league average, and that's got to be on hard hit rate because, as I said, uh, his 71% contact rate is not driving a, a big hard contact index. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out this week. Always interesting, and we'll look forward to talking with you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hey, PD. How you doing? Uh, pretty good, I guess. Uh, it's a Friday. It's my wife's birthday. We're going to go out and have a nice dinner tonight with the girls who came back for the occasion. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, not so much fun in Seattle, unfortunately. Uh, D. Gordon, uh, the uh, big off-season signing, suddenly hit the DL. He's got a hairline fracture in his toe, which doesn't sound good for a speed guy. It's not clear right now how long he's going to be out. Might not be barely over the minimum, but it could be longer. But we also got Robinson Cano's broken hand. We got Cano's 80-game suspension for the drug policy. The Mariners all of a sudden look like they're in real trouble offensively. Uh, Rod Truesdell covers this for playing time today. You've written about it in playing time tomorrow covering the American League West. What's going on in Seattle, and what are they going to do to deal with these big problems? Yeah, two problems here in that both Cano and Gordon were, were, the, were part of the heart of Seattle's offense. But the second part is that Seattle really owns one of MLB's worst farm systems. And from what I can tell, that's pretty much a consensus among, among anyone who's, who's watching this thing. Now, the Mariners have immediately replaced Gordon with um, DH first baseman Dan Vogelback, apparently to spell Nelson Cruz, who had to miss a few games after being plunked on the elbow with a pitch. But Vogelback isn't going to get any regular time, barring a Cruz DL stint or a Healy slump or DL stint. So right now you're seeing the recycling of Gordon Beckham uh, at second base. He's 3 for 18 since he's been there with five strikeouts. Andrew Romine, who shouldn't be starting for anybody, uh, 154 batting average through 39 at-bats and a career 209 hitter. This isn't really good. I'll tell you how not good it is. Andrew Romine is actually on my fantasy team, and I'm struggling with him. Uh, He's one of those guys you almost wish wouldn't play except to do a little pinch running. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Romine, he's been a utility his his entire career. uh, Seattle signed him in the offseason to to deal with uh, not not with full-time play but to but to fill in uh, when they needed help um, so this isn't exactly what they uh, what they had planned uh, going forward I guess the Seattle outfield in particular is going to be jumbled up Gordon moves back to the infield from center field so who's going to get the playing time in center field well, you and I touched briefly on Seattle's outfield last week when Cano was shelled, and that situation isn't much better than the second base uh, call. Uh, any team that has to make a, a choice between Romine and Ben Gamble versus left-handers isn't in great shape. They've called up an inexperienced 28-year-old journeyman named John Andrioli for his Major League debut. He's got some speed that's going to attract some fantasy owners. He was nine, a perfect 9-for-9 nine nine at uh, AAA Tacoma this year, and he's got uh, 237 bases and stolen bases in his minor league career, 80% clip. But this is a guy who struck out 300 times in AAA over the last two seasons while posting a sub-260 batting average. So it's really hard to see how he has any staying power uh, in Seattle. Now, one glimmer and piece of good news for, for Seattle is is uh, in center field, uh, Guillermo Heredia is taking advantage of the extended at-bats. I wrote about this in my playing time tomorrow column. This is a guy who has struggled his entire uh, short career against right-handed pitching but uh now he's doing uh, at least in the in a small sample pretty good uh, he's got a bunch of extra base hits he's eight for 26 early on uh, nine walks 
he's going to get some playing time. The problem is, obviously, that sample isn't very uh, isn't very big, and uh, there's a real good chance he's going to uh, fade as uh, as he gets more at bats. So, um, um, other than maybe a flyer for deep league owners, uh, Heredia, uh, there, there's just no op- no real opportunities to consider with uh, Seattle injuries for fantasy owners. Another injury in Oakland, uh, this time the A's Chris Davis with a K goes to the DL with a strained groin. He's going to miss at least a minimum 10 days. And a strained groin, that's uh, kind of where you generate a lot of your power through the hips, groin, and core area. Uh, How do the A's deal with the loss of Chris Davis? Well, the good news for the A's is that this is their DH. They have some options. They can rotate that uh, to replace him on the roster. They've called up middle infield prospect Franklin Barreto, who can give uh, Jed Lowry a breather in the middle of the infield and let him hit from the DH spot for a little while. It also opens up more bats for Mark Canha, who had been red hot in April, but has since cooled and seen his playing time diminish with the recall of Dustin Fowler in center field. Kenna has some pop, but not Davis-like pop for sure, but he'll get his home runs. He'll just never sustain that 300 batting average he carried into May. Not many players have Chris Davis-like pop. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, Barreto, meanwhile, was a top prospect as uh, as soon ago as, what, a couple of years. Uh, but he got called up last year. He did not look good against Major League Pitching, uh, overmatched, frankly. And uh, now he's back in AAA Nashville, and his numbers still don't look all that great. How excited should we be about this one-time premium prospect being called up? You know, I still like Barreto. He's only 22, and I think the A's rushed him a little bit too much. Uh, but, I, but I think at this point in time, it's a problem. Uh, Barreto actually had a fine Cactus League performance uh, that excited uh, some of his owners. And he started out pretty well at AAA, but um, he's been in an awful slump at the time of his recall. His batting average now uh, down in Nashville was 235. And if you look underneath the surface numbers, it looks like uh, Barreto, he's he's being a lot more patient uh, right now. He's walked 19 times and 119 at-bats. That's to his credit, and he has six home runs. But the 42 strikeouts remain a problem. Uh, So contact is an issue, and he still looks like a work in progress from here. Over in Tampa, Jock, uh, Jacob Faria is suddenly going to be out six to eight weeks with an oblique injury, and that adds more questions to what the Rays are somewhat laughingly calling their rotation. My Master Notes commentary this week is about the Sergio Romo experiment last weekend versus your Angels, and they've announced they're expanding the idea this weekend. Romo's going to open the games on Friday and Sunday versus Baltimore, and they'll have a different reliever opening Saturday's game. Matt Dodge covered all of this in playing time today at Baseball HQ. What's the outlook here for Faria and this wacky uh, Tampa Bay situation? It's not like Faria was having a great season. His ERA was over five, and his his peripherals weren't looking good at the time of his injuries. Uh, but right now, the Rays hope to get Nady Evaldi back from the 60-day DL by May 28th. So it looks like they'll try to muddle through before then. Uh, Evaldi's coming off of arthroscopic elbow surgery. And as, as Matt points out in his uh, uh, Playing Time Today piece, uh, Given Evaldi's extensive injury, he can hardly be relied upon to slide into the rotation seamlessly. You know, honestly, given the way the Rays are handling this, it's just one situation I don't look for in in immediate opportunities. Uh, unless I see one of their relievers suddenly throwing something near Josh Hader, you you, you take a chance that names like this are going to get more opportunities and maybe extended innings. Uh, maybe a guy like uh, Anthony Banda, that the, the light will go on and he'll earn a more traditional rotation spot from part-time efforts. But particularly in leagues that still count wins, the Rays are really a crapshoot fantasy-wise right now. Interestingly, though, Jock, this this 
gambit that they're using of uh, starting a reliever for just the first inning, especially against right-handed heavy lineups like the Angels and uh, and Baltimore, is that you use a pretty good reliever in Romo to get through the first inning, and then these inexperienced young starters come in starting in the second inning and halfway down the lineup, and it gets them a, a chance to, to do well. They started Ryan Yarbrough last weekend against the Angels after... Romo's inning and he did real well. He pitched six and a third, looked okay out there. And maybe there's something to the, uh, the idea that they want to avoid giving up a lot of runs in the first inning. But particularly, as you say, uh, if you're looking for wins, might be a bit of a help to gamble on Banda and Yarbrough and guys like that. But, uh, yeah, it's a gamble. Let's not be pulling any punches on that. In Minnesota, the Twins welcomed back Miguel Sano, their big slugger from the DL. Jock, they've had Eduardo Escobar really help the Twins at third base while Sano was out, although certainly the Twins could use more help on offense. How are the Twins going to work this out? Well, there's two issues here in that Escobar had also been playing a little shortstop for Minnesota, which had been an offensive black hole uh, with uh, Jorge Polanco still suspended until early July, and the only other option being... uh, uh, weak hitting uh, Ihire Adrianza. So Escobar can slide over there as well. But another issue that the Twins face is that Joe Maurer is suddenly on the DL again with more concussion ingu- issues. And he's had those in the past and they've never subsided particularly quickly. So uh, Minnesota has moved Logan Morrison from DH to first base, opening up uh, his old spot, his DH spot for a rotation. Sano could get time at a mix of third base, first base, and DH. Uh, if he's healthy, he's obviously going to be in the Minnesota lineup somewhere. But the question is, what's he going to do at the spot? He was struggling early before he was placed on the DL. I think he was barely hitting over 200 in late April. What is our outlook for Miguel Sano? Yeah, the power is still there. He'd hit 50 home runs and 80 at-bats before he went down, and his underlying uh, power metrics looks looks fine. I'm sure that trying to play through his hamstring injury for a week plus before he went on the DL didn't do him any favors, but you're right. Uh, we're still talking about a poor contact, low batting average option who has had more than his share of injuries. Uh, he had off-season surgery to insert a, a metal rod into his shin after a leg injury last year. He showed up to camp more than a few pounds overweight. Uh, in his favor, he's still uh, just 25, and he, he's got the home run power. But uh, as a Sano owner, I'm I'm cautiously hopeful at best. If he stays healthy, he'll hit home runs. Again, the question is his health and that batting average. A little bit more help in an on-base league. He's traditionally been a pretty good guy at taking a walk, but even that has gone downhill a little bit this year. So uh, Miguel Sano, uh, I guess the jury's going to be out. Uh, Finally, Jock, a development I just saw a few minutes before we started this call, and this is a big one. The Red Sox pulled a move that left many of us somewhere on the spectrum from surprised to shocked to downright stunned. With Dustin Pedroia coming back from the DL, the Red Sox have designated Hanley Ramirez for assignment, which means they're effectively cut their ties with a guy who's been part of the club since 2015. What's going on? Yeah, it is a surprise. But Boston had to do something with Pedroia coming back, and Ramirez just wasn't producing after Thursday's offer with three whiffs. He was hitting 254, 313, 395 for the year. And he's limited defensively, both in skill and position flexibility. If they didn't move Ramirez, Boston would have had to balance the Pedroia move by optioning a guy like Brock Holt, break. Blake Sweetheart, or even Jackie Bradley, who's a premium glove, or maybe even DLing Eduardo Munez and all of the Nunez and all those guys offer um, positional flexibility. Which, of course, uh, Hanley Ramirez doesn't. He's a he's a subpar defensive first baseman. I think we can agree. And a, they tried him in left field last year, and that was a disaster. But but really, Jock, 
the main thing here, I think, is the financial considerations, right? Yeah, Ramirez is 34. He had a player option for next season that would have paid him $22 million, but he needed 497 plate appearances to vest that option. He was on pace to get past that requirement pretty easily, and the Sox just didn't want to pay him all that money, particularly uh, considering his lack of production. Um, as you note, uh, 708 OPS ranks 30th among 44 first basemen with at least 100 plate appearances. Mitch Moreland has played much better. Yeah, Moreland's are over 1,000 OPS. Uh, I'm going to surmise from here, Jock, that Ramirez's plate appearances as a first baseman are going to go mostly to Mitch Moreland then? Yeah, they are. Uh, and with Hanley gone, it really frees up that uh, DH spot more for J.D. Martinez, Pedroia. There's enough age and injury suspect names on this club that they can use those at bats. Uh, who knows? Maybe even uh, Blake Sweetheart gets more AB from the DH spot. And uh, it, it gives them more flexibility all the way around their lineup, really. They've got choices now that Ramirez was really kind of blocking up. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And that's what we're talking about here, flexibility all around the move, when you, and particularly when you're considering that financial option. It makes a lot of sense for Boston. And, of course, uh, some of the coverage I saw Jocks uh, said, mentioned uh, that Ramirez has been something of a class clown in Boston. The fans kind of like his uh, goofing around, but the team was getting a little tired of it. Yeah, and if you put him on the bench and start taking away his at-bats, uh, there's a, a, a real potential distraction, probably a very real distraction. The, the way that this works is the uh, Red Sox have seven days to try to arrange a trade with somebody, which, of course, nobody's going to take them up on that, I'm pretty sure. So then he becomes a free agent. He will go. He can go and sign somewhere. Do you think anybody would take a chance on Hanley Ramirez at this point? That's a real good question. I mean, let's face it, there's so there's such limited competition in terms of who is contending for a postseason spot. Uh, you'd almost have to find a team um, willing to take a chance on Hanley somewhere at the DH first base spot, which is pretty easy to fill uh, in the American League. Um, his power has been uh, disappearing. I would actually be surprised if that happened. Yeah, I think so too. I think anybody who's got Hanley Ramirez on their fantasy roster is pretty much going to be out of luck. Baseball and fantasy baseball, Jock, a tough, ruthless business. Indeed it is. Thanks very much for helping us out, Jock. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return our Baseball HQ commentaries, we'll have the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Pitcher matchups all coming up in just a second. But right now it's the time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say with confidence that BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, Brandon Cruz covers the American League Central, including the outfield situation with Lonnie Chisenhall returning to Cleveland. There's a catching situation in Minnesota and all the other teams in the division. In From A to Zinke, columnist Fred Zinke looks for five category studs. And in The Speculator, columnist Ryan Bloomfield offers an in-season upside list with eight players, including Michael Brantley, Brandon Belt, and six other players with some upside. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time, and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and our pitcher matchups report. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at San Diego shortstop prospect Fernando Tatis is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. 
The San Diego Padres' Fernando Tatis Jr. entered 2018 as one of the most talked about and highly touted prospects in baseball. In just under a year, the 19-year-old Tatis went from a prospect on the outside of the HQ100 to number 14 on our preseason list, with some predicting that he would be atop that list in 2019. Whether it was talk of those lofty expectations or the cold, wet spring, Tatis got off to a slow start, hitting an anemic 171 with a 231 on base percentage and a 333 slugging percentage, with three home runs, six walks, and 34 strikeouts in 96 at-bats for AA San Antonio. Tatis looked to be pressing at the plate, chasing pitches out of the strike zone, and making contact at just a 70% clip. Hopefully no fantasy owners hit the panic button, and Tatis has quickly turned the ship around, hitting 333 with a 426 on base percentage and a very impressive 644 slugging percentage with 7 doubles and 6 home runs in 87 at-bats in May. Long-term, Fernando Tatis Jr. has as much raw upside as any prospect in baseball. His quick right-handed stroke results in plus bat speed and plus raw power. He runs well and should be able to stick it short where he has good range and a plus arm. The only real red flag is his propensity to strike out, and he's already whiffed 61 times in just 181 at-bats this year. That contact rate and strike zone judgment will need to be addressed before Tatis will be ready to produce at the majors on a consistent basis, but few prospects possess the raw tools that make Fernando Tatis a must-own prospect in all leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes daily call-ups analysis of Tampa shortstop prospect Willie Adamas, Washington right-hander Eric Fetty, and other prospects being called up, and in the eyes have it, HQ scout Chris Blessing takes a hands-on look at potential hybrid, a two-way star, Tampa left-hander and first-base prospect Brendan McKay. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in our leagues, and Baseball HQ has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is Cincinnati second baseman Brandon Dixon, and here to tell you about him is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's athletic. Has surprising speed and good defensive versatility, allowing him to play almost anywhere on the diamond, according to the May 23rd edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com, and he's batting 326 at AAA. So why is 26-year-old Cincinnati Red super utility man Brandon Dixon flying under the radar in most leagues? Perhaps he lacks a clear path to playing time in Cincinnati. Although Brandon Dixon is capable of playing first, second, and third, plus both corner outfield positions, his path to regular playing time is currently blocked by guys like Joey Votto, Scooter Jeanette, and perhaps even third base prospect Nick Sunzel. Some analysts, including our own at BaseballHQ.com, may even point to the fact that Roswell Herrera, the player Brandon Dixon is replacing, was sent down to AAA because he wasn't getting enough at-bats at the Major League level in 2018. Why would it be any different for Brandon Dixon? Besides, Brandon Dixon's .258 career batting average of the minors does not necessarily inspire confidence for a breakout at the Major League level. 
That's why Brandon Dixon, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Then again, a decent case could be made for rostering Brandon Dixon. His defense is an asset as versatility will likely lead to more playing time in the National League, where double switches are relatively common. Plus, besides having the ability to qualify at almost any position, an asset to almost any team, Brandon Dixon, prior to his Major League debut on May 22nd, was batting 326 at AAA while exhibiting a nice power-speed skill set with four home runs and eight steals. And let's face it, Brandon Dixon is going to be playing in the hitter-friendly Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. That never hurts. Did we mention that Brandon Dixon has hit safely in 28 of 37 AAA contests in 2018, including an eight-game hitting streak in May? So to recap, Brandon Dixon is showing the ability to hit for both average and power with a little bit of speed, along with the versatility to play almost anywhere. In other words, maybe Brandon Dixon won't win a specific category for your team, like home runs or stolen bases, but maybe Brandon Dixon could win a championship for your team by providing excellent organizational depth and freeing up additional roster spaces. And that's why Brandon Dixon is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has the frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups, and here with a scan of Lance McCullers of Houston in Cleveland for a showdown with Carlos Carrasco and other weekend matchups, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Our marquee matchup on this Memorial Day weekend is the only one in which both starting pitchers have matchup ratings above one. On Saturday, Houston's 24-year-old right-hander Lance McCullers takes his matchup rating of 117 into Cleveland's hitter-friendly progressive field. There, the Indians' 31-year-old right-hander Carlos Carrasco counters with his matchup rating of 113. Cleveland is in the midst of a lethargic 500 start to the 2018 season. They are over 500 at home, but the Indians are under 500 versus right-handers and under 500 versus teams at or above 500. Cleveland has an average run differential, just over half a run per game. Houston has a major league best average run differential of more than two runs per game. The Astros also boast MLB's second best road record, third best record versus right-handers, and third best record against teams at or over 500. That's why the win component rating of Carrasco's overall matchup rating is minus 062, while McCullers has a win component rating of plus 012. Both starters have similar component ratings for ERA and WHIP, but Carrasco's strong strikeout component rating evens up the overall matchup ratings as his 227 outshines even the fine 170 of McCullers. Carlos Carrasco and Lance McCullers last locked horns in Houston on May 20. Carrasco carved out a solid PQS 3 on the road, and McCullers posted a perfect PQS 5 at home. In 10 starts thus far this season, Carrasco has produced 4 PQS doms and 3 PQS disasters. He has 2 complete games, and he's gone 6 or more innings 7 times. With a BPV of 122, Carrasco is working on what would be his 5th consecutive season of triple-digit base performance values. 
In his 10 starts thus far this season, Lance McCullers has fashioned five PQS doms and two PQS disasters. He's working on what would be his fourth consecutive season of triple-digit BPVs. McCullers is on pace to post career bests in ERA, expected ERA, whip, and opponents on base percentage. No wonder our marquee matchup shapes up to be a good one. Now let's look at our maximum and minimum matchup ratings. With a superlative matchup rating of 262 for his start in Miami, Washington's Steven Strasburg has the highest matchup rating of the weekend. Strasburg also enjoys the largest matchup rating differential. He faces Rule 5 right-hander Eliezer Hernandez, who has a matchup rating of minus 113. That makes the matchup rating differential 375. Boston left-hander Chris Sale deserves a shout-out for his runner-up matchup rating of 253 in an interleague home outing against the upstart Atlanta Braves. Hector Santiago of the Chicago White Sox has the worst matchup rating of the weekend at minus 167. Even the paper-thin hometown Tigers should be able to muster some offense against Santiago. And watch out for baseballs flying off of Cubs bats in Wrigley Field this weekend. The visiting Giants' Chris Stratton has the second-worst matchup rating of the weekend at minus 162 on Saturday, and teammate Ty Block has a minus 132 on Sunday. To recap our recommendations for this Memorial Day weekend, look for effective starts from marquee matchup men Carlos Carrasco and Lance McCullers, plus maximum matchup men Steven Strasburg and Chris Sale. Load your lineups with Cubbies in the friendly confines as Giants starters Chris Stratton and Ty Block have combined matchup ratings of minus 298. And minimum matchup man Hector Santiago should make even Tigers hitters look great. We're now about one-third of the way through the 2018 regular season, and the milestone Memorial Day weekend checkup is when we recommend moving away from exercising excruciating patience into improving your ratio categories. That's an invitation for you to use the new ERA and WHIP component ratings shown in our exclusive matchup rating system. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has our weekend pitcher matchups all during the season. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. 1-1, pitch. He popped him up. He's going to get it. Rochus down from third. Rochus makes the catch. Ball game over. A perfect game. A perfect game for David Cohn. The third time works like a charm. It is the third perfect game in Yankee Stadium history. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from the great fantasy baseball invitational, fan graphs, rotographs, the Tout Wars Hour radio show on the Fantasy Sports Network. Justin, welcome back. I'm glad to be here. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, we've talked about some of your places that you appear regularly, uh, fan graphs and rotographs. You're also a broadcaster on the Tout Wars Hour with our mutual friend Lore Michaels every Sunday afternoon on the Fantasy Sports Radio Network, available through iHeartRadio and elsewhere. Uh, recently, Lore said how we all know that we have to be aggressive with a team that's struggling, but we tend to be complacent when we're managing a successful team. And you said, hey, be aggressive all the time. But why fix what doesn't look like it's broken? It's not a matter of necessarily fixing things that are broken, but I, I want to be aggressive in all aspects of my game all the time. 
uh, to stay ahead of anything that might get broken later on. There's nothing wrong with trying to improve a good team. Uh, I I don't want to be complacent, you know. And and one of the things we talked about in the in the first uh, half of this was it's it's bad when you get complacent. It can really hurt you. Um, and so be aggressive, you know. Continue to work com- trade conversations. Continue to work the waiver wire because uh, there's nothing wrong with making a good team better, especially in case, you know, sometimes your entire team hits a slump at the same time, and it's nice to have options. Lore mentioned uh, an experience he had in the Tout Wars American League only, the league that I play in. One of his competitors and mine bid 265 out of his 1,000 fab units for Fernando Romero. Uh, Lore himself had, he thought, aggressively bid in the mid-60 unit range. What was your reaction to that very aggressive-seeming 265-unit bid? Yeah, that was really aggressive. But, you know, one of the things about uh, mono leagues, like AL only and NL only, is if you're not going to try to get the hammer uh, for the trade deadline, then you need to be aggressive and get the guys you want. Um, and if you believe a guy like Romero is a difference maker for your team, then you need to be aggressive to go out and get him and spend them out so you can have him on your team the whole year. And that's one of the reasons why people are so aggressive early on in leagues like that is because they feel like, well, if I'm getting this guy in April or in May and I get to keep him all the way through the season, he's going to deliver me that many more stats than maybe a guy who comes over at the halfway point uh, for the trade deadline. So I understand the move. I'm not necessarily as aggressive in fab uh, in leagues like that. I tend to want to have the hammer later on or in case a premium prospect gets called up, uh, you know, like a Juan Soto. Um, so, but I understand the rationale behind it. I did too. And I thought, you know, it's, as you said, in a mono league, it's different than it is in a mixed league because there's so few chances to get that kind of guy. And I'm not saying that Fernando Romero is that kind of guy, but it seems pretty likely he's going to be one of the few chances you have to make a bet on a guy who might be that guy. In in fab, you know, I think sometimes we think about fab in terms of auction dollars, uh, at the beginning of the year, and I mean, that's why people aren't maybe as aggressive as they should be, but they're not. Fab is free money, and you don't get to take it uh, with you to the next season. You need to spend it, and so if you're going to spend it, and if you're not going to just nickel and dime yourself uh, so that way you have a chance at the hammer at the trade deadline, then spend it hard because, like you said, in a, in a league that deep, you're not going to see a ton of influx of talent into the waiver wire, and if you have an opportunity to go get a guy like that, then then you need to make sure you outbid the competition. You also said, though, and I think this was correct, that being aggressive with your early spending can adversely affect your ability to keep your team viable later on in the year. These are obvious competing interests. How do you balance them? I mean, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, I think, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, you know, th- this is one of the reasons why I li- I don't like to spend aggressively in fab unless I feel I'm getting uh, a pretty sure bet or a really big talent um, before the Memorial Day time. Because I want to see where the standings truly lie and I want to see them concrete before I make huge moves uh, like that that can hamstring you later. Because I- I've got guys... 
in, in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational that have already spent 90% of their fab. Well, if they were wrong about the guys they needed to target and pick up because the standings shift around, well, now they're in trouble, and there's not a whole lot they can do unless someone's willing to trade them for uh, their def- or to help their deficiencies uh, in the league. You know, now they're nickel and diming the rest of the way. The, you know, the same thing can be said about wanting to have the uh, the longest term impact on your team by picking guys up early. Can be said on the flip side in terms of fab. If you spend early, then you're going to be nickel and diming the rest of the way, and it may leave you out on any elite talent that comes into the player pool. On the Tout Wars Hour, you guys also talk about the uh, Tout Talk public questionnaire that people can read, where the Tout Wars experts are asked a range of strategy questions, tactical questions, uh, those kind of things. The question in the most recent week was, how do you respond to a lowball trade offer? And a lot of the Touts weighed in, including me. And uh, what did you think of the range of answers? Uh, that's always an interesting one because it comes up all the time if you're uh, you know, on, on message boards or uh, in Facebook groups, or I, I, for a while I ran a, a reoccurring article on Fangraphs um, that talked about ethics uh, in fantasy sports and fantasy baseball in particular. Um, and you see people get so angry when they get lowball offers, and 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 they they give uh, these kind of vindictive responses. You know, they they send back a trade. That you know is ridiculous as well, uh, kind of as a uh, uh, you know a screw you, buddy. This is what you get. Um, and I, I'm a big proponent of trying to remember that uh, trading, especially as a relationship, and if you don't want to end up doing it by yourself and only by yourself, then you need to treat your partners well. And so um, you know, a lot of times I'll. You know, I'll I'll be very kind even when I get a bad offer and tell them, hey, maybe we're just not valuing guys in the same ballpark, or hey, maybe we can uh, figure out a way this helps both of us a little bit. Um, but to act out of anger or out of spite, I think, really damages you more than gets your point across that this was a bad trade offer. You know, and I've never really seen the point of getting the other guy to understand that it was a bad trade offer especially by using sarcasm or some kind of negative tone in responding, because like you said, it seems like you're just cutting that guy off from any possible trade talks later on, because oftentimes that guy is going to be looking at your trade offer and what's going to pop into his mind is, hey, this is the guy who who was snotty to me. Maybe this is my chance to be snotty back. And and you see that happening from uh, from time to time. And as Larry Schechter said, uh, sometimes it's just a legitimate instance of you think your player's worth more than he thinks your player's worth, and that's okay. And it is. And, uh, you know, sometimes you're not going to see eye to eye. Sometimes uh, you're going to disagree on the valuations of players. It's one of the reasons I hate vetoes uh, in leagues, because, uh, you know, what you're saying, as long as collusion isn't involved, because obviously that, that's the only reason for a veto, in my opinion, but what the league is saying when they veto a trade is that our evaluations of these players mean more than your evaluations, which isn't, shouldn't be, should never be the case. Should let people manage their own team. And so, you know, unless you have some sort of history with this person that they, t- you know, treat you like you're stupid or they always, uh, lowball you, 
don't pass judgment that this person is trying to be insulting or trying to take advantage of you just because they offered you what you consider a bad trade. Talk to the person and figure out where they value this uh, and see if you can find some common ground. And if you can't, just tell them, hey, listen, I think we're too far apart. You know, Maybe we can talk about a different trade later on. That's right. Uh, Fred Zinke, who may be the tradingest guy I've ever played fantasy baseball with, uh, his advice was always respond with something. Always make some kind of offer back. You know, say, well, I'm not sure I want that guy, but would you consider trading for the, and then you mentioned the name of a guy you might be interested in or that you actually do want. And to Fred, the whole point is keep the conversation going. And and I think that's really sound advice in any sales environment. You want to keep the person that you're trying to make your deal with talking to you. Because as soon as you stop talking, you lose any chance of making any deal that could help you. And I think that that's really the most sound advice that anybody could have is keep the conversation moving, even if you think that maybe it's probably going to be not worth your while. It's going to be the other person just doesn't get what you're trying to accomplish. My own personal bugaboo, Justin, is guys who make trades without looking at my roster or without looking at my league situation <laughs> and saying, would you be interested in making this kind of deal? Uh I'm, for instance, right now in Tout American League, I'm going to get a one in home runs and RBIs. There's no two ways about it. I'm already a mile back. And I occasionally get an offer that says, would you be, you, you could use some power. And I think to myself, well, no, really, I can't. You know, I mean, you could trade me uh, Giancarlo Stanton and Aaron Judge, and I'm still not going to catch anybody in home runs and RBIs. So that it's pointless for me to do that. And I don't understand why you didn't see that by looking at my roster. Like, make an offer that helps the other guy. Yeah, like I said, I mean, trading especially is a relationship. And you've got to make sure that you treat your partner as well as you're trying to treat yourself. Because people remember. People remember when you, you know, have taken advantage of them. You know, I don't remember the great trades I've made. I remember all the bad ones I've made. I remember every single bad trade that cost me a league or... I had to, you know, watch this guy with the $1 superstar because I traded him away a year too early. Um, people don't remember the, the good things. They remember the bad stuff. So try not to have people remember you as a person who's, you know, giving bad players away or, or trying to shove a, a, a bad trade down someone's throat. I only remember two trades, I think, in the whole time I've been playing, because once they're done, I kind of just let them wash out of my head, except to the extent that I can learn from them to any extent. But uh, I, lots of people on who listen to this show will remember that I've talked about a trade I once made, Mariano Rivera, for a waiver claim type of guy. And all my league mates were yelling and screaming and demanding vetoes and all this kind of stuff, which fortunately we didn't have. But the point was I put Mariano Rivera on a guy's roster who then went past four or five of the guys I was trying to stay in front of at the time. It was a tremendous trade for me, and it was a helpful trade for him. And and from that point of view, just because you don't get how it works doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. And the other one, and I'm curious what you think of this, uh, this is kind of in the early days of the Internet I traded Roy Halliday to somebody for something useful, a hitter of some kind. And later that afternoon, they put uh, Halliday on the DL, and it was obviously going to be a long-term problem for Roy Halliday in that season. And he started complaining that I had advanced knowledge of this and that I'd basically sold him a car with no transmission. And I knew that the transmission was missing, and I just kept it to myself. That wasn't true. What do you think, in in hindsight, 
when you look at a deal like that, if I make the trade in good faith, should I have reversed the trade just because Roy Halladay got injured at such an inauspicious time? I, I don't think you need to. I think that that is unfortunately sometimes how things work out. I mean, uh, we just had the same thing happen in the, uh, the the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational where a guy traded for Robinson Cano, um, and because of the way the uh, the rules are set up, he had to wait until the next week to uh, to actually get him in his starting lineup. Uh, and then literally he got to use him, I think, for one day, and then he was suspended for 80 games. Well, broke his, you know, broke his wrist and then was suspended for 80 games. So, um, you know, that's just how things happen. And, you know, and sometimes it happens like that. Sometimes it happens... Uh, in the way you're talking about, where you make the trade and then all of a sudden news comes out and guy needs Tommy John or guy's going to be on the shelf for four to six weeks uh, with an oblique. I I don't think that it's the uh, owner's responsibility to say, well, okay, we can reverse the trade because this happened. That's the uh, that's the risk you take when you make a trade. If it had happened the other way around. Would you would he have uh, would he have traded back Roy Halladay to you for the injured hitter? I, I doubt it. So I think that's a little bit of sour grapes, uh, personally. Especially nowadays, when the internet means we all have access to the same information in pretty much real time. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm a little uh, skeptical about claims that uh, a trade that turns out badly right away, like that same day or something like that, needs to be reversed for ethical reasons or moral reasons or anything like that. And before we get to Boons and Baines, Justin, uh, you mentioned the great fantasy baseball invitational. I mentioned it uh, earlier on when uh, introducing the show. And uh, tell our listeners who might not be familiar, what is the great fantasy baseball invitational? You you started this. Yeah, I started it this year. It's something I'd been thinking about for a while because I never thought I would be in a league like Tout Wars. I mean, that that was a pipe dream for me. Um, uh, amazingly, you know, because of the hard work I've put in uh, and some of the friends I've made, uh, including the the aforementioned Laura Michaels, uh, I have ended up in Tout Wars. But, you know, a few years back, I was like, I, I need to figure out ways that I can prove to people in the industry that I'm good at this. Not, not, not that I can just write or I can talk on the radio or a podcast, but I'm actually good at playing fantasy baseball. And so I came up with this idea, and um, it kind of takes from a little bit from uh, uh, the NFBC leagues. So it's there are 15-team leagues. There's an overall uh, competition. Uh, there's also you know individual competitions within the, uh, the 13 individual leagues. But it gives a, a lot of people who may never have a shot at a labor or a tout wars a real opportunity to uh, to, to compete against some of the best uh, in the industry and some of the biggest names in the industry. Um, and it's been a lot of fun, and it's been super well-received within the industry. I, I've been so overwhelmed by how much people have enjoyed it, uh, how much talk there was uh, during the drafts uh, as they all went on. Uh, they were all slow drafts. Then went over the course of about two to three weeks, um, and then really how how interested people have been in it uh, since the start of the season. I think a lot of times some industry leagues lose a lot of steam in terms of talk and chatter, uh, but these have really continued to go. Uh, and you can follow all of that stuff over on the Twitter handle at uh, tgfbi. And uh, how does somebody who wants to play in the league get an invitation? 
Um, I set up a, uh, a, a like a Google sh- uh, uh, survey. Um, all you had to do was put in your information. Uh, I mean, it was like four questions. What's your name? What sites do you work for? Give me a link to some recent work. Um, and uh, uh, and what's your Twitter handle? And if you were actively working in the industry, I got you a spot and you signed up on time. I think a lot of people uh, found out about it a little bit too late. Um, so I, I'm thoroughly expecting that the numbers will go up pretty steeply from the 195 participants that are in this year uh, for next year. We're actually talking about making, uh, or uh, we, I'm thinking about making uh, a second format. So there might be a roto uh, format and a head-to-head format uh, to accommodate. Some people prefer the head-to-head format, and and that's what they uh, would prefer to play. Well, it sounds like great fun. I'll get my uh, application in uh, for in time for next year, that's for sure. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Justin Mason from Rotographs and Fangraphs and the great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. Uh, during the season, Justin, as you know, we ask our experts to talk about players uh, you think might be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season, boons being guys who will help, banes, guys who probably won't. Let's start with your boons. Uh, these are guys you think should interest our listeners for the balance of 2018. In the American League, who's a hitter you think could be a boon? I think uh, T. Oscar Hernandez could be. Um, he's just on the top of all the stat cast leaderboards in, in terms of barrels and average exit velocity. Uh, he's a young guy that's still learning, but uh, making pretty good contact, not striking out too much. I think T. Oscar Hernandez could be a big boon. Boy, I, I live near Toronto, and we see a lot of their games. My wife's a fan of the Blue Jays, and boy, the last couple of games, he's looked really shaky in the field, uh, like lack of effort shaky, not go taking bad routes, which he also does, mm. but kind of jogging after balls that he could have uh, sprinted after and that kind of thing. That's a little thing to worry about, but yeah, he can hit. Uh, the National League, how about a boon hitter? Uh, I really love what I'm seeing out of Yasel Puig, and I've been a Puig guy uh, for quite a while, and he, he's really struggled hitting 221 on the year. But since coming back from the DL, he's hitting 294, 406, or 765 slug uh, with five home runs. Uh in 40 plate appearances. I mean, this is a guy who has all the talent in the world, but maybe like T. Oscar Hernandez is, is dealing with right now. It, it's a lot of, it's a mental game for him when he's mentally on, um, you know, he can be one of the best players in baseball. And I, I think he is a real boon for the second half to the mound. We go back to the American league. Who's a pitcher you think could be a boon for fantasy owners. Uh, I struggled with this one. There were so many guys I could have put on this list. Um, so I've been trying to talk up uh, a guy that I really love that I don't think gets enough love uh, within the uh, fantasy baseball industry. That's Andrew Heaney, who's looked absolutely fantastic uh, in his return this year from Tommy John. The innings may be a limit, or there may be an innings limit later on, but this guy looks like a top 20 pitcher right now, and I'm going to bank that the Angels' problems uh, with health in their rotation make uh, have his innings limit get stretched a little bit. And in the National League, how about a pitcher who's going to be a boon? Oh, Walker Bueller looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, I got to watch him pitch live last year uh, when the Dodgers came to San Francisco. I was super impressed by his stuff then. Uh, And all the injuries to the Dodgers rotation uh, should keep him in the rotation long term, I believe. Uh, This is a future ace to me. I love Walker Bueller. 
Justin Mason's Boons, Teoscar Hernandez of Toronto, Yaziel Puig of the Dodgers, Andrew Heaney of the Angels, and Walker Bueller of the Dodgers. A little bit of a West Coast bias there. Uh, I didn't really notice that one, but <laughs> I, I guess it is. Uh, I, I did have a couple other uh, East Coaster or, or Midwest pitchers um, that I really liked, but uh, I went with Heaney instead. So let's move over to our Baines, uh, guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious for the rest of the year, if not downright pessimistic. Let's start again in the American League with a hitter who could be a Bane for his owners. Oh, I really struggled with finding a guy like this. Um, and so I went a little bit different direction. Um, I'm going to go with Glaber Torres. He is absolutely just killing it right now since coming up. Already has seven home runs in just 26 games, hitting 330, 394, 602. He's, he's a bane for me only because I think this is the sell high point right now. With his prospect pedigree and the way he's hitting the ball, there's no way he can sustain this long term throughout a season. There will be a rookie wall. I don't think he's got this much uh, power the rest of the way. Um, and so right now I'm trying to sell him if I've got any shares. So you're not saying I should hang on to Taylor Wade? No, no, I don't think he's going to end up back in the minors or anything. And I think he'll be a pretty good player. I just think if you can capitalize on his perceived value right now, you have to. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a Bane? Uh, it's my arch nemesis, uh, Dansby Swanson. Um, I've been a big uh, detractor of Swanson uh, for, for a while. I think he is an overrated commodity in fantasy um, I was, I was, I got a lot of heat last year when I didn't rank him inside of my top 30 shortstops. Uh, and, you know, it turned out to be true as one of my bold predictions that he wouldn't finish within the top 30 at shortstop. He didn't. Uh, right now, the numbers look uh, palatable and they were great before the injury. Um, but a lot of it is just good luck. He, 379 BABIP is really uh, holding up that average. I think this is a good major league player. I don't think he's a very good fantasy option at any point. Back to the mound uh, in the American League, who's a pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, Jake Odorizzi. Man, the underlying numbers on Jake Odorizzi look atrocious. I know the 317 ERA and the uh, nine strikeouts per nine look really nice right now, but the FIP and XFIP are over a run higher. Uh, the strikeout rate... Uh, I don't think is going to be supported long-term. Um, I, I think this is a guy that we're looking at has like a mid-fours to five ERA with less than, less than eight strikeouts per nine rest of the way. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to get out of my shares of Odorizzi if I have any. I heard somebody say the other day that uh, Jake Odorizzi should never pitch more than six innings, and if they just keep him to that sort of five and two-thirds to six full, uh, then uh, he'd probably be better for it, and so would his owners. Yeah, I, I think he probably would be, but I think the Twins don't really have that option. So, um, you know, they, they don't have the strongest rotation. They don't have the strongest bullpen right now. So I think they kind of have to hope that he can deliver more than he probably can. Maybe this is a team that should be starting one of their better relievers, not that they have too many to choose from, uh, in the first inning, then turn the ball over to Odorizzi so he can get rolling with the uh, lower half of the order of the other team like Tampa's doing. Uh, somebody's got to do something along those lines to, to maximize the value of these pitchers, I'm convinced of it. Uh, finally, in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher for you? Uh, I, I think Sean Newcomb is my Bane. I know a lot of people are super psyched about what he's doing, you know, sporting a 239 ERA and nine strikeouts per nine. 
I think we've forgotten that this is a guy who got off to a hot start last year when he got his call up to the major leagues and then struggled mightily uh, in, in the second half. Um, you know, the, the, the short portion right, he, he protect, gets protected a little bit from it because he's left-handed, but I think it still uh, is something that's going he's going to struggle with. You can't walk four per nine and expect to keep an ERA the way he's doing. Um, I, I think there are a lot of red flags on a Sean Newcomb uh, that I don't think people are really buying into yet. Justin Mason's Baines, Glaber Torres as a sell-high for the Yankees, not a complete disaster. Dansby Swanson of Atlanta, Jake Odorizzi of Minnesota, and Sean Newcomb also of Atlanta. Uh, boy, this has been terrific, Justin. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Justin Mason. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Justin Mason, FWFB. Uh, you can read all my work uh, at Fangraphs, at Fantasy Alarm, uh, and at Friends of Fantasy Benefits, the site I own. I also do uh, multiple podcasts a week at Friends of Fantasy Benefits. Uh, I'm on the Sleeper in the Bus podcast with Paul Spore and Jason Collette a couple times a week. Um, and then uh, on the Towers Hour on the Fantasy Sports Radio Network with Lore Michaels on uh, Sundays from what, uh, 1 to 3 p.m., I believe it is. Oh, no, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And those uh, Fantasy Sports uh, Network broadcasts are also available as podcasts. That's how I listen to them as well. Uh, Justin, uh, it's been a terrific conversation. I'm really glad that we managed to hook up this way, and I hope I can catch up with you again later in the year. Uh, I would love to come back on. This was an absolute blast. Thank you for having me. Justin Mason owns the great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, writes at Fangraphs and Rotographs, and broadcasts the Tout Wars Hour on the Fantasy Sports Network. When we come back... Our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Masternotes coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just training forward at every pitch. Here it comes. A swing of this. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen to this crowd. I'm guaranteed that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting. Stands deep. Feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no-hitter. A perfect game for John Larson. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, Patrick. Uh, you've started sending out a regular letter to your subscribers at Masters Ball. Uh, this is a terrific addition to your product suite. Uh, I really enjoy the letters. Uh, you talked about uh, using rest-of-season projections in a recent newsletter. And I was struck by this comment in there. The idea, you said, is to put as many stats on each roster spot as you can, which sometimes isn't putting the best projected rest-of-season player in that roster spot. Seems like it would be the best idea. Why isn't it? It's, it's contextual to the league. And, you know, what, I, what I'll do, and you folks do it at HQ as well, you project the, the rest-of-the-season stats, and valuation assumes that each player is active for the rest of the season, and that's just not the case. There are some players that are, are injury fill-ins that are playing a lot more currently, or there's some players that we assume will play a lot more 
to the end of, at the end, you know by the end of the season if they're whether they're called up or we're just expecting a player to get hurt so they're on the bench now when we know they'll see more playing time at some point during the season so in leagues that you have uh, easy transactions you know there's no doesn't cost money or there's just not a limit for them you want the player that's playing now and that might that might not float to the top of the rest of the season list because maybe we don't expect this particular player to be playing all season, but they're just on an injury fill-in or, or whatever. So, like I said, in leagues with frequent moves uh, or it, it cheap moves, or you don't waste all your fab on picking up one of these players, you want to you want you want to keep it transient. You want to keep it moving. You want to keep that stat that 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 the ro- it's a roster spot. It's not a player spot. You want to keep it filled with the, as many players that are active as you can. It's not always writing streaks because we've talked before. Streaks aren't really predictive, but you know, it, it just it, it is a you know you float the last couple of weeks stats on your on your commissioner service and maybe the last seven days, last fourteen days to the top, filter by at bats, and those are the players you want. You can use the projections to filter it down to per at bat or per inning to sort of see who, who who's the hot, most highly skilled player to sort of filter out who, who you want. But it's it's kind of it's it's wrong to just look at anybody's rest of season rankings and just pick up the guy that's highest ranked according to that according to those rankings i mean our aon on only leagues that we do tell orders and 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 labor and whatnot that we're in you know maybe it's a little maybe because there aren't the accessibility isn't as high so you you, you pay more attention the rest of season because by the end of the year that the player will have uh, performed better there's just less movement there's less ability to pick up players but in shallower mixed leagues man just just churn I was going to say, uh, using my own experience in that uh, American League-only format that I play in Tell Wars, uh, sometimes you've, you've got to do what you've got to do because there is no replacement, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's very difficult to find a guy who's going to play at all. So uh, uh, if you think you've got a guy who might be sitting around for two weeks and then play a lot later on, sometimes that is the right move. But as you said, it's so league contextual that you have to really understand all of the ramifications of the moves that you're making. Right. Earlier this week, Alex Cobb in Tampa tossed another turkey, uh, 3.2 <laughs> innings, gave up six runs and 10 base runners, just struck out three guys. I keep seeing uh, experts and touts saying, keep the faith on Alex Cobb. But really, Todd, as far as you're concerned, what hope is there at this point that uh, Alex Cobb's going to be successful enough down the road that you should maybe think about buying low right now? I'm curious what the what the original faith was that 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 some of these touts that you're mentioning had because this this is a pitcher with you know a good pitcher in Tampa but he he kind of pitched to the park he didn't strike out a lot of batters even though we we think he's got the stuff he just he never generates a swinging strikes he didn't strike out a lot of batters basically he's a fly ball pitcher that was 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 backed by Tampa being a, a big big field hard to hit homers with a pretty decent outfield. So, and, and he had decent, you know, not stellar, but decent control. So he kind of pitched to the park. And I was just, I was concerned going to, going to Camden Yards. It's just sort of the op. You don't want a fly ball pitcher that doesn't strike out a lot of batters working in Camden Yards. Now, he's had trouble everywhere. So, you know, it's just the point being, even when he does get better, I'm not, I don't want him in a mixed league because I'm not streaming Alex Cobb at home in Camden Yards, especially because he's going to be facing the Yankees and the Red Sox a lot of times. And we couldn't say this the past few years, but we can now. You know, they got two of the best offenses in the league again. And they're now, they're now scary again. So, And he doesn't get to face his own team, which is a shame because the Orioles can't hit anybody right now. 
So I don't know. And I looked at his spin rate and I looked at his velocity, which are a couple of the telling, you know, the, the indicators. And they're both the same as last year. So you can't even say, well, he's just loosening up. or maybe, you know, Actually, if they were down, I'd be saying he's probably hurt. But it's, he's just not executing. And I think part of it, he's not executing. And part of it, it's the park. And I think this is just, an, I mean, man, the ERA is at. It's obviously not all park. Maybe it's in his head. I don't know. So I'm not one of those touting when Alex Cobb comes back, look out. I mean, because even if he does... The, you know he's just still to me still an AL only guy, and even then, it, it, strikeouts are just so necessary in today's game. I don't think you can give up that many strikeouts to start and still compete in the category. Another Alex C in Tampa <laughs> had a rough outing. Alex Colome, the closer, came into a tie game in the ninth, uh, gave up three runs, took the loss. Uh, only one of the runs was earned, though, Todd. It's still enough to lose the game, I understand. But the details of what has been described as an implosion make it look to me a lot less worrisome there was an error in there there was a, either a pass ball or wild pitch in there um, he did issue a walk at an inopportune time but mm-hmm. how much can we dismiss or alter our perceptions of a bad stat line by looking into the details a little bit i think it's easier to do with starters because you know the starter's gonna start again in most cases relievers it's up to the whim of the manager. So it it, it really th- depends upon how the manager views it. Did the manager watch the game? Well, the, the manager watched the game, of course. But did the manager, is the manager going to say, oh, you know, you did your job, we didn't do ours, or the umpire, you know, blue missed that call or, or, or whatever, and, 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 give the, and give the reliever a mulligan. So in a starter, I, I, I'd like to do this because it often gives you an idea if he does, if the pitcher pitches with the same skills next time, he's probably going to be successful. Relievers, you almost have to try to read the mind of the manager. And sometimes you can read some quotes and, and after the game, what are the? Because of course the manager is going to be asked about it, and and how do they how do they react? How do they act? How do they uh, answer the question? The tone of their voice and sort of you know they flippant or are they just kind of dismissive or do they just kind of you know give the uh, what what's the, uh, the the seal of approval whatever the the expression there is. So. Um, and then it also kind of depends upon if there's another if there's a replacement. Sometimes if the you know the guy in the eighth inning struck out the side on 12 pitches, and then the guy in the ninth blew it, there's someone close behind him. If there's just no competition, the manager may have no choice. But I read, I try. You know, nowadays it's not so hard to get interviews, and you know, they're either you get a little bit of a thing over the web, they may show part of it, or uh, so many highlight shows you can often find out what the uh, manager. Is at, you know what the manager says, and you know they're asked about it, and it's not because of fantasy; it's just a regular question. So it's it's not it's not as hard as it used to be to try to find out what the manager says. And you know, is it manager speak or is it real? Not sure, but it's uh it's out there, so it's something to think about. But it's you know you can't you it's not what you think; it's what the manager thinks. It puts me in mind of another closer, uh, Fernando Rodney in Minnesota. Towards the end of April, he had what looked like from the line, like he had a really bad game. He had two earned runs. He gave up uh, a, a home run, a couple of hits. He didn't walk anybody, but they, he blew the save and lost the game in New York quite famously. And the, the very next day, I heard some experts uh, talking on Sirius XM, and the gist of it was, oh, there's Fernando Rodney blowing another game. What else is new? And I happened to be listening to the game because I have Fernando Rodney on my uh, on my tout team, 
And uh, the, the inning started with a ground ball to third, and Miguel Sano literally tripped over his own feet fielding it, <laughs> and they called it a hit. Now, it's an error for me to you. The next guy comes up, he grounds to third, and Sano can't make the play. So now he's, he's induced two weak ground balls and got two guys on board, both scored hits. Then he does give up the home run, and that's on him. But other than that, he was actually pitching pretty well. And then you look at all the games since – and his record is uh, just fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. he's got uh, seven strikeouts over his last nine innings or whatever the case might be, and, and he's, he's – uh, ten innings, and he's he's really been pitching quite well. And, again, I wonder about the necessity – uh, and you said starting pitchers. I wonder about shorter run things like closers where when you see a guy had a bad outing, it's not a bad idea to go and see what exactly happened because uh, sometimes the stat line can be misleading or deceiving. Oh no! I think you need to look, and then the, the next part of it is what the manager says about it. Now you think you you mentioned about Rodney, and if this is calling out some of our industry brethren, you know, so be it. But I think that a lot of times that we we uh, we we tilt our narrative towards what we sort of believe or what we hope. You know, a lot of people are saying Fernando Rodney's going to lose his job. So in order to make that narrative right, every time he stinks, you got to start saying Addison Reed. I think it was actually one of my newsletters that I wrote about it. If it wasn't, I'm saying I, I don't recall. But I, I feel kind of that way about Arodas Viscaino. All right, I have him. I thought he was a nice, you know, less lesser-priced option for saves. But everybody, well, not everybody, a lot of people thought A.J. Minter was a perfect speculative pick. So every time uh, Viscaino has a little bit of a hiccup, gives up a run, all I see on Twitter the next day is pick up A.J. Minter, pick up A.J. Minter. But the next day I'll look in the uh, in the box score and Viscaino got another save. So it's just I think a lot of times we tilt our narrative to, to fit our, our initial whatever evaluation or projection or whatever. And it's happening with, with – it always happens with Rodney and it's happening with Viscaino a bit. And, and uh, But as far – yeah, I think you're you, – your, your concept is right. Let's let's figure out what happened on the actual in, in, in the actual uh, save opportunity, and then take the next step and see what the team seems to think about it. I've even found out sometimes sometimes a starting pitcher gives a clue too. You know, if I get blew a save for him, it's something like it's you know well, you know it wasn't wasn't his fault, just one of those things. So occasionally you can even gauge the the uh, the temperature in the clubhouse by how the starting pitcher reacts bit of context as well, uh, at least as far as Fernando Rodney's concerned. Uh, you might want to give him a little extra rope because they're not exactly overloaded with alternatives in Minnesota either. Addison Reed has experience, but he hasn't been really terrific this year either. And then you get back and start looking at Trevor Hildenberger and guys like that. And all of a sudden you say to yourself, well, if they want to, uh, if they want to ditch Fernando Rodney after a bad outing, who do they go to? Yeah, well, I think Reed. I think you know Reed was one of the best setup men in the league. He just hasn't performed yet. This, I mean, if you look at Rodney's history, this is what he does. He has a blow up and then ten saves, and then another blow up and then ten more saves. That's just what he does. It's what he's always been. So if and I can, you have to believe Minnesota, then that they've done their homework. And I, I think I don't. I don't think there's a rank of teams out there, you know, more analytically inclined teams. But from what I've read, I, you know, the, some of the new brass they have there, I do think they're into the numbers a bit. So you know they didn't just sign Rodney blindly. They knew this was going to happen, and they were willing to accept it. They, you know, their team that I just talked about numbers, if you sign Rodney, you're into the guile aspect because he's been doing it. You know, there's a million better relievers, but he just he gets the save. So they believe in that aspect of it as well. 
but uh, but sure, he's just uh, you know, you, the strikeouts you mentioned, you know, it's one of those he, he doesn't fan a ton of batters, so that's an important uh, consideration in closing nowadays because that's a, that's a way to make up for to try to keep up with the, the 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 massive strikeouts that are going on now is to make sure your closer gets some, but you, you know you're not going to have three closers that strike out 100 batters, so it's not he's not a bad secondary or tertiary closer to sort of back up your your top guy. And that's exactly how I drafted him. I had uh, Kent Giles in Houston, who I thought was going to be my elite guy and is turning into that. And then uh, Fernando Rodney was $8 or something at the draft. I thought he starts the year with the closer role. All he has to do is get 10 saves, and I'm in the profit. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that accounts for something as well. In his last 10 outings, I should point out, zero earned runs, which uh, which helps. It's not the same as getting two strikeouts every time out either, but uh, adding 10 innings or 11 innings with no earned runs also helps the ratios. Uh, in your Z-Files column at Rotowire, Todd, you took a second look at some pitchers that you weren't high on uh, earlier in the season. Uh, so why the improved outlook for, to start with Nick Pavetta of Philadelphia? Yeah, so I what I do is I do the rankings, the weekly uh, upcoming two starts, and just the pitching rankings in general. And I got a formula, we've talked about it, that, that, that takes what they've done and combines it with what I think they do to come up with an in-season projection. But sometimes I have to say, you know what, I was wrong with my initial expectation. I was too generous or or uh, too, too conservative, and I need to change that. So here's a few pictures that did something to convince me that they're, that the baseline should have been changed so that when they're, what, they, what they do in season, it, it matters, but it's pulling off a better baseline or sometimes worse baseline. In this case, they're all a little bit better. You know, Pavetta uh, impressed us last season with a couple of outings with a, with a lot of strikeouts. So anytime we hear strikeouts, we, you know, we, we, our, ears, our, our ears get perked up. Is that the expression? getting older and I, my, my expressions, I'm mixing my expressions, but uh, we get perked up when we hear strikeouts. And then when he, we all picked him up and he all let us down. He let us all down. And this season he started out uh, really high as well as far as strikeouts go. But I've seen enough in the, in the walk rate and the first pitch strike mark and just his overall demeanor that I think he's got his control on his control under control. He's got his control better. He's honed his control. I, it's you know even even if a guy has good control over the course of a season, the next year, I'm always skeptical that he's able to maintain it. So to say he's able to maintain it in the season is a bit of a risk, but sometimes you have to sort of take these leaps of faith. And from what I've seen, you know my eyes and the numbers tell me. The first pitch strike rate and the low walk rate. I think we. I think that Pavetta has learned that throwing strikes is good, and he's actually throwing his curveball for strikes. It's always nice when you find a little something different with Cobb. I mean, we, we we both looked at the numbers. We couldn't see anything different other than that the outcomes were worse. So we just. I mean, there was nothing that sort of told us this is what's going. You know, another we didn't know what what could hang our hat on. To make him better, I think we can hang the hat on. Pavetta has—I uh, don't want to say perfected, but he's throwing the curveball a lot more efficiently. When I look at Pavetta, one thing that concerns me is a lack of consistency. I, when I checked out his PQS scores, they bounce around all over the place. Uh, started the season one four five, then he went one four one, then he had a PQS zero, and that was against Washington. It's a tough club. And then the last three weeks, it's four four five, and those are excellent PQS scores. 
for now. And, and I wonder how concerned should we be about a guy whose game logs or PQS logs or whatever you use on a game-by-game basis are so extremely bouncy. You know, it's not like he's going 3-3-4, three, 3-3-2, three, 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 or 4-3-3 three, three, like that. It's 1-4-1-5-4-5-1-0-4-4. It's either all or nothing with this guy. The analysis wasn't that Pavetta is now a top 10 pitcher. It's just that my baseline for him improved so it, it, it you know it, he's still a risky pitcher it just improved from maybe someone I didn't draft at all to someone I'll have in my mixed rosters as a potential streamer especially because he can strike batters out and contrary to perception uh, Philadelphia Park CBP isn't as bad of a pitcher's uh, bad of a pitcher's park as people think it's a home run park but it's not horrible it's not terrible for runs, so I don't mind streaming Pavetta in a, in a favorable matchup. So I think I mean, keeping that in mind, yeah, that's why I was saying too that there's still there's still risk in just assuming or expecting that the walk rate to continue to be better. Now you know PQS. I should I I should know this better than I do. There's some it doesn't completely flesh out the the luck element of giving up runs. If I'm part of that is the number of runs uh, and, and even, I think, even hits. So there's still, it's it still doesn't completely uh, flesh out some potential, you know, it's not a complete measure of skills. There's still some right. other stuff in there. So that's part of it, too, is some of those ones and twos may have been, like you were saying about relievers, you need to look at that one or two PQQS and what went into it. Is Did he pitch better than a two PQS? And the other hand, sometimes a four or five, has right. some luck in there too. It's just a bunch it of batted balls that, you know, hard hit balls. It's just atom balls, as they call them. So it can go either way. But um, it just yeah, the baseline went from Pavetta for me. I'm trying to think. You know, if in, in a mixed league, in mixed league, he went from being, you know, if a, a redraft league from being a reserve pick, I would probably take him as my fifth, sixth, or seventh starter, which is someone I'm looking to stream. So that was that's kind of the improvement that we're looking at. What about Tyler Skaggs of the Angels? Yeah, now Skaggs, a lot of it is just health, and because I just you take a look in a not in a, not in a vacuum, you take a look at the big picture. The the infield defense with Simmons and Cozart is fantastic on the left side. Um, Trout's not the a Gold Glover. I think his his defense is kind of like Jeter. It's a little better than we than he's given credit. For. His, they, we think it's better than it is because of the player. It's not terrible. He doesn't throw as well, but defense defense. Decent up the middle. Cole Calhoun can't hit, but he's having a great season fielding the ball. Upton isn't terrible. Basically, the same thing. There's a really good defense. It's a big outfield, so it, the, the the fly balls that don't leave the yard, which are few far between, are usually tracked down. And he's a big ground ball pitcher, so the 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 ground balls have a good chance of being fielded. So the, to me, this guy just got to stay healthy and not not walk people and that's sort of what he's been doing. He's been throwing more sinkers, increasing the uh, the ground ball. The his velocity is about the same. I just I think again, it's sort of similar to Pavetta. The common theme being, I trust his improved control. Not only that, he's got better command within the zone too. The old-fashioned control is walks, and command is where you locate the ball within the zone. Uh, sometimes people use interchange the two. Um, I think he's got better control and command which is going to limit the strikeouts and limit the walks. 
now it's just a matter of health with this guy. And I think that the six-man rotation is helping him. So uh, I, I kind of – he may have been someone I was drafting anyway, but he's he's now – I don't think he's quite at a point yet where I'm going to leave him in for every outing. But it's going to take a pretty tough matchup for me to remove Skaggs from my lineup. And finally, Todd, uh, you raised your baseline expectations on Blake Snell. Comment to him, it's walks, and you know, it's not just, you know, it just isn't that what's, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what's so important for pitching in general, isn't it, is 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 fewer walks, because if you, you figure if you're throwing fewer walks, not only less men on base, you're uh, fewer men on base, you're, you're also improving your command as well. And Snell has teased us many times, and finally, is, is this now the time, and it, and it looks like it's the time. Now, he a lot of things, have, like with Skaggs, he's got a really good ballpark to work in. The defense, I don't think is, is well, I don't think, it's not as good as, as the Angels' defense, but it's still a difficult park uh, to hit in. He has that for the advantage. He's always, he misses more bats than Skaggs. He's got a, you know, he's always, he carries a higher swinging strike rate and that sort of thing. So, um, I do like, you know, I, I, I think it's real. Now, the thing with Scab with Snell is though he's currently uh, do a ER correction and I just I think everybody's gonna well he's been a little lucky with the batting average and balls in play. You look at the whip I'm sorry the the FIP and the X FIP. I know there are other perhaps better indicators of XERA, but those are the two that are sort of conventionally available. So I will refer to those in in some of the you know in the in the sort of the these sort of articles. And he's due a correction, but I think that the skills are such that it's going to be a pretty soft landing. Last year he teased us, and then he had a very hard landing. I think there's going to be a soft landing. Now, the thing is, I think a lot of people think this, so it's not as if you can go out and get Snell and use the argument that his ERAs do a correction. I think if you were, if you have Snell, you sort of expected this to happen. So I think you can still get a Pavetta. I think you can still get a Skaggs. It just maybe this is just me misreading the tea leaves, but I think if you have Blake Snell, you were kind of anticipating this, and it's going to be tough because you know in my head I'm, I'm, I was right about Snell, and it's going to be it's going to be tough to get it to get him from me because you know you you took the chance and you were right, so uh, we'll see. That's an interesting factor in how you make roster decisions, and in a perfect world, in an ideal world, it'd just be a, a, a poker chip that you're deciding whether or not to move into the pot or not, and uh, unfortunately, you're right. When we get a guy who basically we've, we gambled on a little bit and landed on our roster, we're a little more reluctant to give up uh, on him in the sense of trading him away for something else because, hey, this is the one guy this year that I was really, I hit the nail on the head. I got Blake Snell for three bucks at the auction when everybody thought I was crazy or whatever a positive mm-hmm. story exists in your mind about your acquisition of Blake Snell and how it validates your own opinion. And uh, we all like to have our opinions validated, let's face it. I, I'm serious about this too, and I'm not, I, no one's going to do it. But if you were to Google nameless faceless pieces of statistics generating meat you would find a few pieces that i've written over the past 15 years using that expression because that's what you have to consider these guys and we you know we don't we're humans we 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 let some other factors get in but you know they they just uh, they're just you know uh, they're they just generate stats for us you cannot get personally involved you know i i say that though you know what there's a whole lot of people out there that play fantasy for fun 
and you do it, you know, do what you want. I mean, if you're not playing for, you know, you don't, not everybody plays for jelly beans, so I shouldn't say that sort of categorically. You, if you, you know, you do what you do, it's, it's fun. But, you know, if you're playing in a serious league and you want to win, then you draft players from your uh, your arch rival for your home team from you know that you know players that burn you in the past or or you know god forbid are, are bad people you know if you want to win you want to win so uh i you know i gotta remember that more people than not are in this for the fun of it and i'm glad that they are because it keeps us doing what we're doing it does indeed and it's always a pleasure to do what we do with you todd zola thanks very much we'll talk to you again in a week's time absolutely Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and he appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about the Sergio Romo experiment in Tampa. Okay, quick, which pitcher would you rather have, pitcher A or pitcher B? Pitcher A's ERA is 313, pitcher B's is 725. Pitcher A's whip is 116, pitcher B's is 158. Pitcher A's strikeout rate is 23% of batters faced, pitcher B's is 18%. Pitcher A gives up hard hits at a rate of 34% of batters faced, while pitcher B gives up such hits to 42% of his batters. And pitcher A's soft hit rate is 18%, while pitcher B's is 14%. Clearly, you want pitcher A in this comparison. But here's the kicker. They're the same pitcher. Pitcher A is Minnesota right-handed starter Jake Odorizzi when he pitches through the opposing batting order twice. Pitcher B, also Odorizzi, when he pitches through the order the third time. I started thinking about this earlier this week when I heard the news about the Tampa Bay Rays using reliever Sergio Romo to do something that hasn't been done since Babe Ruth was stealing hot dogs, or however that story goes. Romo, as you probably heard, started two games on consecutive days against the Angels, as the Rays experimented with using matchups in a whole new way. In the first game, the Rays wanted to use rookie left-handed starter Ryan Yarbrough, but not in the first inning. The first inning is the highest scoring inning, and the Angels' scheduled batting order was very right-handed heavy, with Zach Cozart, Mike Trout, and Justin Upton hitting 1-2-3, and more right-handed hitters after that. The thing is, Romo is a monster versus right-handed hitters. His strikeout rate against them is over 35% of hitters faced, and that's roughly twice Yarborough's K-rate versus righties. So the Rays thought they stood a better chance of getting through that first inning unscathed with Romo on the hill, and that Yarborough would benefit from starting the second inning with a zero on the scoreboard and not having to face those top hitters in the Angels lineup. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. After Tampa didn't score in the top of the first, the game state was a 55% win probability favoring the Angels. But Romo struck out Cozart, Trout, and Upton in order, changing the game back to a 51% win probability favoring the home side Angels. Yarborough then came in and got to start his game facing Albert Pujols, went on to pitch six and a third innings, giving up just one run on four hits and a walk, striking out four. The Rays won the game. The story was similar on Sunday. Romo started facing right-handers Ian Kinsler, Trout, and Upton. He walked Kinsler, but fanned Trout and Upton, and then got Andrelton Simmons, another right-handed hitter, to ground out. 
This time, Romo stayed in to start the second inning as well. He walked Cozart, then fanned Jeffrey Marte, still another right-handed hitter, and turned the scoreless game over to Matt Andrees, who finished the inning with a strikeout and a groundout. So far, so good. Andres was unlucky the next inning, giving up a run on an error, a walk, a wild pitch, and a ground out, one of those kind of things, and another runner scored off Jose Alvarado, giving up a sacrifice fly. But the experiment worked well enough that the Rays have already said they'll probably start Romo again twice this weekend, against the predominantly right-handed hitting Baltimore Orioles. This could become a thing. There's already a lot of expert articles talking about the experiment, including from the likes of 538.com and other analytical sites. From the start of last season through Tuesday, 46 pitchers with at least 50 batters faced the third time through the order have seen their ERAs jump by three full runs or more when facing the opposition that third time. And these are not all bums and cast-offs. Regardless of what you think of Odorizzi, he's a pretty capable starter. And as we saw, he's really good those first two times through. The same can be said of other third-time strugglers, including Charlie Morton, Jamison Tyon, Zach Greinke, Jake Faria, Hugh Darvish, Masahiro Tanaka, Lance McCullers, Brad Peacock, and Jonathan Gray. All pretty good hurlers. Pitchers who are close to a three-run increase in ERA include Aaron Sanchez and frontrunner for the Cy Young Award, Garrett Cole. Now, if you were a manager or a general manager and you know you had a solid pitcher for those two times through the order, why wouldn't you want to maximize the effect by letting them start their stints a little lower down, especially in a scoreless game? It makes a lot of sense, and let's suppose that's what happens. Our next question is, how will this affect fantasy baseball? I can think of a few effects that would change valuation methods and possibly also roster strategies. First, lower value starters could see an uptick in value. Let's go back to Odorizzi. Assume the Twins have a Romo-like short man, a bold assumption, who could have started Odorizzi's games this season. Odorizzi's ERA in first innings this year is 540 and his whip is 130, his OPS against around 800. In the second, third, and fourth innings combined, however, his ERA is just 180, his whip 093, and his opponent's OPS a mere 527. Give Jake Odorizzi a pass on the top of the order in the first, and he'll have far better results in his decimals and, it seems likely, in wins. Of course, it could also be that the second inning start would be masking some other effect. In Odorizzi's case, for instance, the weak spot might not be the first inning per se, but his poor performance across his first 25 pitches. He gives up a 781 opponent's OPS in those early throws versus 565 in pitches 26 through 75. Whenever he comes into a game, he has to throw those first 25 pitches before he can throw number 26. So maybe there's more to this than it seems. Second, leagues with minimum or maximum starts rules would have to consider revising those rules. A guy like Romo, having a full-time role as a one-inning starter, could rack up 80 starts all by himself. And all the so-so starters joining games in the second would see their start totals crater or even disappear. Since a starts requirement is meant to require fantasy teams to have a fair number of what is called starting pitchers, which actually means several innings pitchers, leagues would have some arguing to do to establish new rules. Third, 
ditto for innings requirements. If the experiment or other new pitcher usage and management methods take root, it's going to be nearly impossible to get 950 innings, much less 1,000, out of a nine-man rotisserie pitching staff. It's already problematic. Next, leagues would have to reconsider their overall hitter-pitcher roster requirements. The Romo experiment means a lot of pitchers on each major league team's roster, maybe even more than we have now. That will mean even shorter benches, more Marwin Gonzalez-type multi-utility guys, and fewer injury replacements in the free agent pool, especially hurtful in AL and NL-only formats. Those leagues are going to have to reconfigure their 23-man rosters, maybe all the way down to 11 hitters, 12 pitchers, or even 10-13. Next, pitchers who can consistently navigate the third time through the order will become much more valuable. In this short study, when I looked at it, 28 pitchers actually got better in ERA and 61 improved their whip the third time through. Sometimes, of course, this is because their baseline first and second times through decimals were just horrible. No place to go but up. But in the other cases, pitchers lived up to the broadcast booth ninny narrative of getting stronger as the game moved on. Some examples included Luis Castillo, Sean Manaya, Rick Porcello, Chad Bettis, Corey Kluber, Noah Syndergaard, and even Ronaldo Lopez, who held his ERA just under four in first and second and third, but crushed his whip from 135 the first two times through to 096 the third time. To capture the real value of the Romo-type pitcher, Finally, leagues might need a new category, or to classify a successful one-inning start as a hold for scoring purposes. The current rules don't have a classification for a Romo-type start, but a successful rule would sure look like a conventional hold to me. Now, I don't know for sure if this Romo experiment is going to work out over a longer period. Since baseball adopts new methods about as readily as your grandma took to her microwave oven, I'm not optimistic until someone uses it extensively and starts winning playoff rounds. I'm also not sure if this method in particular can be stymied by the simple step of just alternating left and right-handed hitters at the top of the order. I'm not sure if teams will start looking to see then if their Andrew Millers and Josh Haters, totally dominant pitchers, might be more useful pitching regularly in the first to give their teams optimal starts and to shorten the games for what used to be starting pitchers. And there are probably other ramifications that haven't yet come to mind. Let me know what you think in the comments field under this column at BaseballHQ.com or on my Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. For Baseball HQ Radio, I am Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Justin Mason, owner of the great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, a writer at Fangraphs and Rotographs, and a broadcaster with the Tout Wars Hour radio show on the Fantasy Sports Network. Justin's a very interesting guy, and I think you'll agree an excellent guest here on the show. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. 
Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky, And our pitcher matchups report was presented by Baseball HQ Analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well and as always to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and make a nice comment about the show. It helps us attract new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Happy birthday to Lisa, who gets younger every year, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.